You're listening to the Opie and Anthony channel on Sirius XM. The Ron and Fez show starts. Come on. Now!
Okay, let's get down to it, boppers. Our bodies. Surrounded Face Show. Artist of the day. Tulsa's own. Leon Russell. He's just a stranger on the strange land. That's Oklahoma. That's the Mokies. They bring it. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Still no Chris Stanley today. We have Pips back, but he is not permitted in the same room as, as I like to say, the talent. Pips, how are you feeling right now? I feel awful, Ron. This medicine's got me all doped then up. Then why aren't you home? Well, I feel better than last week. I could talk again. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> Everyone stay home until you stop being the Ebola monkey. Chris Stanley, you actually, because you wanted to do good work, you came in here and killed him. He's just not dead yet, but you murdered him. I hope not. I miss him. I demand that people... I mean, the second they feel slightly sick, just stay home. Now, unfortunately, Fez, that doesn't include mental illness. But any actual illness, stuff that you get from germs, stay home. The made-up illness, the... Oh, uh, yeah, come on in. Take a good look. Hold on to the table. Grip in. My mind feels uh, stopped up. Bing! 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. We're going to open up the phone lines today. Anything at all that you wish to discuss. I know Mr. Watley has something on his mind. We're going to talk to the interns later, too, because interns are now suing corporations for the fact that they are interns. I don't completely understand it. Who are our interns today? We have Ba and Molly. Alright, send me a little Molly because we had Ba yesterday and uh, the thing about Ba is he really needs a big sporting event because he's our sports guy. And we've caught him on the lesser side of things. There's Molly wearing a Little tiny, would, would that be called, yeah, right here. Would that be called a sundress that you have on today, Molly? It would be. Okay, see. I'm really starting to understand fashion. Yeah. I'm really start uh, understanding fashion. I want to get to you in, this, in just a second, but here's John in Mississippi. What do you got, John? Hey, Ronnie B. You know, Dr. Steve spoke about this on his uh, show on Saturday, that one person comes into that building getting sick, you know, it's going to get the whole building sick. Way to go, Pips. This is why Dr. Steve is a show that you cannot miss, because he's giving you the straight... Every time, like, these guys are zombies, and the rest of us should Planet Z on the uh, rest of them. Uh, Biggie, you're on the Run of Fed show. Hey, buddy. I was curious what you thought of searching for Sugar Man. Um, I don't know. That was like a last year's film. It was a nice little film, and now he's got a whole big tour about it. He's a very nice man. He came in and did the show with us. Is that it, Biggie? Mm. 
It's very hard to comment on stuff uh, that happened so long ago. I don't feel a great deal of passion about. Uh, Molly, you missed a big movie star on the street yesterday. Who? You know what it is, Fez? No, I don't. Somebody was right outside our building yesterday. Really being a movie star, too. Like acting in a movie? No, like just walking around being bigger than oh, like life. Being a diva. Like when everybody was clapping and screaming and going crazy for him. And I just happened to come from that little diner I tell you about. Yeah. Where you go and get my sandwiches. Yes. Well, yesterday I went there for lunch and I came out. Big movie star action. Mr. Brad Pitt. No and the way. place was going crazy for him. Oh, my gosh. The place was going crazy, and people were just pointing their phones at him and screaming, Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. And he was running around just like high five <laughs> and like, yeah, really? make sure you come see whatever it is, fighting disease, fighting the zombie disease. It's coming out this week. And everybody was just going ape shit. That's crazy. His hair had a glow to it. A movie he star He does have glow. great hair. Yeah. Well, he had a very long hair. Uh, and it was driving the ladies crazy. Oh, I bet he looks fantastic. Uh, Molly, are you familiar with this story about the intern suing? Not really. I'm familiar with the, the headline, basically. All right, the headline is this. There are some, uh, interns out there who are suing because over their internship... They did not get paid. Now, you were getting paid and paid well by SiriusXM. Yes and no. You're being paid with what? Grades? Yeah, with credit. Uh, does that seem fair to you or is this a ripoff? Because, you know, the whole internship thing wasn't around when I was younger. It's really only, I'd say, about the last 10 years or so that it became really intense. Um,. And I, I, would, I wish that the interns were prepped with the story and had their opportunity to read it. But do you think the internship is a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing because, um, well, I don't know. I feel like if you're signing up for the job, then you need to understand that it's unpaid. Like that they, they made sure, like when we were on interviews and when we came to orientation, they were like, you are not getting any money. And everyone agreed Well, what do you that. hope to get out of your internship? Um... Just, like, experience and, like, getting familiar with the business and meeting people and, you know. See, I didn't know this until last semester. I didn't know that you guys paid the school to be here. Like, the the people last semester complained to me that they had to buy college credits to come here. And they're basically paying to come here to Sirius. Yeah, I guess you could think about it like that because you're paying tuition and then right. through your enrollment at school, that's how you end up with an internship. At least that's how our, our mean, uh, vicious uh, interns thought about it uh, last semester. Uh, here's Tom in Tulsa. You're on the Run of Fed show. Hey, Ronnie B. Yeah. Love you, man. Thanks. Hey, I, it's, you know, this whole Chris Stanley being sick thing has really upset me the past few days, and I have a moral conundrum for you. Okay, that's, uh, that's great. Oh, okay. no. It's a moral conundrum. Conundrum. If Chris dies, do we have to sacrifice Pips to make it, make it bright? Well, here's the thing. If Chris Stanley dies, Pips becomes even more useful to us. He will be 
the new Chris Stanley. And I will start and call him Chris Stanley, demand that he smoke, demand that he comes to work drunk, and then he will also eat long free breakfasts. So his life will change where he will actually morph into. Right now, he's like a... uh, I think that he would be the intern to Chris Stanley in an an old style where he studies under him like an apprentice until one day he becomes the master. Do you you like your internship here? Yeah, I think it's great. We may have to cut you because Condi Nass is being sued. Charlie Rose is being sued. I don't understand what they're suing for. Because they just don't want to get water for people all the time. It drives them nuts. It's fine. I mean, you love your internship, but you know the difference between you. You're young enough that you're not at the edge. When we get interns that are seniors, they are freaked the fuck out. Yeah. And they want that job so bad. Well, you're just cruising around here. You're smoking angel dust. <laughs> you're having fun. You're gambling. I see. You always got either a card game going or you're pitching pennies. You have a nice time. The seniors are very tense, though. Right. Very, very tense. Yeah. Um, let's go over here to Jason. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron and Fez. Yeah. Hey, uh, back in the late 80s when I was in high school, my senior year was allowed to do a thing called co-op. For the last two hours of my school day, I would actually go to, my, uh, go to a job that I had set up. And, I, of course, I'd get paid, and I would ask to get two school hours of credit. I mean, is that gone away? I mean, could they do something like that? No, they just call that same job an internship. So all the stuff that we had that we considered after-school jobs are now internships. And look, if I could, if I was young enough and I thought I could get into Condé Nast, that would be pretty cool. But a lot of times, you're basically interning for Kramer. I mean, there's a (laughs) lot of places that are like warehouses and shit where, well, what do they use an interns for? Oh, I know, grunt work. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Um, here is uh, Dean. Dean, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. Uh, yeah. is, there any, is there any chance that um, Fez has poisoned Hicks just to get out of buying him food every morning? He might have poisoned them with the food. I would obviously be pointing to Fez right off the bat, except for the fact that I screamed when Pips came in here, sec. Screamed, get away from me, <laughs> keep him away from me. And here's the thing. Chris Stanley didn't sh- send him home immediately. Because I said to Chris, he can't breathe. His throat is collapsed. Why is he here? <laughs> And Chris was like, oh, no, he's <coughs> he's fine. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> he's going to a clinic after the show. So everything that Chris Stanley got, he wanted. And maybe he even wanted a couple days off because I heard he was licking pips. I mean, he said he needed to do it because it was part of the job. But I was very confused about the whole thing. <laughs> pips, I hate just hearing your sick voice. I feel like I'm in a fucking hospital right now. Maybe this is all like a... A conspiracy, like you know how the interns at Condé Nast are suing. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of us interns have like planned this elaborate ruse to get you sick. This could be. I could be like the Brad Pitt, and this is that Attack of the Z World Zombies. That's the name of the movie, Attack of the Z World Zombies. It really is. Uh, yeah, and these are fast zombies. Uh, the zombie, of course, 
just the the idea of a zombie. It just represents bronchitis. <laughs> it's all like an allegory. Uh, he uh, Pips had bronchitis. I talked to Hicks's lawyer last night. He's got brontosaurus. I mean, he has it bad, where he's now a leaf-eating dinosaur. Um, let's go over here to Jeff. Jeff, Jeff, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. I, I was an intern in the 80s for Solomon Brothers. They paid me 200 a week. I thought I was making large money. Yeah, it would seem like they should get a little something for their time, a little taste. It, it was great. I, one year I was a, a, a page. I ran around the city doing, like, banking for these real fat cats. And then the other year I, I did arbitrage trading for uh, a couple traders. It was the best best summer of my life. And they just gave you a couple hundred bucks a week to make it uh, okay. 1980, Ron. 200 yeah. a week. I, I, I had money left over. Yeah, and that's when the rent in this town wasn't so bad. <laughs> Where you could actually... Get an apartment if you're a young person, not a room in someone else's house. Um, here's uh, Mike in Florida. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, I think the summer internships are just one more thing that corporate America is doing to rip us off. When I went to school, I was in agriculture, and uh, I got a job on a neighbor's farm, and he paid me. He could have called it an internship. And ripped me off, but it was a summer job. I learned a lot. What did you learn? Uh, how to grow oranges, one, but and it's also sort of like corporations have now done away with the pensions and given us IRAs. Yeah. Well, at first we thought that was a good thing. Of course, it turned off. It turned out to be mostly a ripoff. Yeah. The problem is we kept living too long. Um, right. Well, you know. Uh, by the way, I wish I knew how to grow oranges. <laughs> I think that would be fucking great. Just know how to grow things would be fantastic. Um, the girl who did the internship at Condé Nast said that her job was like the devil wears Prada, uh, but she didn't get a makeover in the end. So basically, what a lot of people get mad about is they come in here and they want to learn the business, and they end up running out and getting lunch for people, and picking up their dry cleaning, and getting stuff from their eBay, whatever they have to do, and they don't really learn the job at all. Do you feel like you're learning the job here? Absolutely. Is Pips teaching you the ch technical stuff? Yeah, definitely. You think you know how the business runs? Yeah, I'm starting to get a sense. Don't go home with hope, right? Right. Never <laughs> go home with hope. That's the thing. Know that whatever you get into as a young person, that's what you'll die hating. And that's the beauty of American <laughs> life. You will eventually get around to everything that you thought that was cool when you were younger is just horrific. Um, but you got to figure is uh, that some of these kids are going to go into internships and learn a lot about the business. And a lot of people are going to, to work for people who don't want to teach them shit. Uh, Mike, you're on the Run of Fest show. Hey, Ronnie B, million bucks. Hey. Um, yeah, I understand why they're, they're looking for money, but it, it, the, the whole thing uh, you know, sort of rubs me the wrong way. The, these interns, after they've received their college credit, and granted, I understand that they, they had to purchase uh, tuition to, to participate in these internships. Right. They're going back retroactively and asking for money for, um, for not learning. Now, wouldn't it be up to them as college students and and 
driving their own education to say, hey, wait a second, go to my advisor. I'm not learning anything here. You know, I don't want to fetch coffee anymore. Like, I want to learn how to work the board. I want to, work, I want to learn how the business runs. Isn't it sort of on those students to make sure that they get the education that they want and then not to cry about it at the end of their internship? Well, it is, you know, I, I had never really given this concept uh, very much thought. And uh, I always, like, think that the kids bring a lot to the show, mainly because they're not dead inside. That the fact that they come in here, like, Molly was like, oh, my God, we got Lonely Island coming up. She's so excited about stuff like that. We're all too jaded and awful and scarred inside to get any joy out of anything. So I feel like a vampire just taking their life force for the fact that, oh yeah, that's right, you are supposed to like this business. Everything isn't supposed to be a big, sad fucking problem all the time. So because of that, I, I like them to learn the business. But I've heard from interns at other places that they just end up on a computer the whole day either doing Facebook stuff or whatever. So it really depends on what show you get in with. But I also agree with what this guy's saying, that like you have to take some responsibility for like the choice that you have. Would you be like that at school if you got a history class and it was a shitty teacher? Would you... I'd probably switch out. Yeah, and you'd go down and say, look, there's nothing here for me. So yeah. that's a good lesson. Because you, you, you have to get like a form signed, so I guess I'd have to explain that this wasn't what I was expecting out of the class. So I never would have done any of that kind of stuff. I would have probably just stayed home that day. <laughs> um, here's Dan in Canada. You're on the Run of Fed show. Hey, Ronnie. Yeah. I uh, did a little uh, internship in chemistry and uh, agriculture, and uh, after a couple of years of that internship, I got 18 months free room board with three square meals a day. That sounds a little better. Yeah, this is sort of making me feel... <laughs> You're feeling a little burnt. I'm feeling a little burnt. But maybe the reason they created an internship is because someone would work for less. Like, there are kids out there who would die to work for, like, a particular internship. So Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense if you get in with the right company. And most of the people I think that we hire here come from internships. So we have a very good track record of... Uh, if we see somebody who's a real hustler, everybody puts it in the back of their head of, oh, as soon as we have an opening, this kid is going to be great. The The funny thing is, once they're in here for a year, they just act like the rest of us. <laughs> they lose that thing that I was talking about of just having some energy. Um, I do think that you just can't take these kids and act like, all right, we want you to set up tables, and we want you to, you know, you really do. There should be some kind of a contract that the company gets back, give, gives back to them, and they do leave with an idea of how a company works. Because every company, no matter where you go, needs people to make copies and get coffee and stuff like that. So you're not really learning. Uh, here's a good thing to learn. All young people get treated like shit. All young people aren't wanted. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. You have to pay your dues, I guess. Yeah, nobody... But pay your dues is just to keep living while other people die and retire. That's what paying your dues <laughs> means. Just keep slugging it out. Um, here is Phil. Phil, you're on the Run of Fez show. How's it going? I, I wanted to compare this situation with the interns to the 
college athlete and whether they should be paid or not, it's something that you've talked about a lot, Ronnie. And, uh, you know, I, they know what they're getting into. They're learning a side of the business, and they might get a future opportunity, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah, the difference is that those college athletes, those colleges are making millions and millions of dollars off of them. So it would be like, suppose we gave Molly and uh, Ba a show that attracted tons of listeners and advertising, and we're like, hey, you're learning the business. I mean, they would be a draw, you know? So when you really look at it, the college athlete, particularly the premier one, well, right. you just you just said the key right there. The premier ones. There are thousands and thousands of college track athletes and volleyball players. And yeah, nobody would pay them. We never you, hear you, of. Yeah, you would never pay them. Cool. You would pay the people who put asses in the seat. You would just say this is a free market, and whoever could get paid for this uh, would. Uh, there's a situation now where they're starting to scout these kids and give them scholarships in 7th and 8th grade. Absolutely, and the, the system, something is going to change in the next five years, and, you know, this is the first time where... What, I, what I love about it, situation. it's going to change because the NCAA got so fucking greedy and really screwed it up, and they can't be uh, trusted at all. Um, here's uh, Ernest, you're on the Run of Fest show. Yeah. Um, these guys think they got it pretty tough. I grew up in South Africa the first 19 years of my life. My internship, <laughs> before I finished high school, I went a year underground in the mines with my father. When I went to university, I wanted to do geotech engineering. They put me another year underground. You think these kids have got it pretty tough? You try well, to go a couple of miles underground. i got to give it to Molly. She rides here underground every single day, <laughs> so she's pretty familiar with that kind of lifestyle. And most of the time, you don't get a seat. Um, oh, my God. That, by the way, that is the whole thing of what it eventually comes around to, is older people telling you when they got kicked in the balls with a steel-tip boot. That is what experience gets you. And that's what I'm talking about with cynicism. Huh. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's James. You're on the Run of Fez show. Yeah, Ronnie. Hasn't uh, interns been around forever? Just they were called apprentices, apprenticeships? Yeah, and I think that the difference with an apprenticeship is that you have to promise these kids something back and say, you will learn the business. I think that the kids that are suing feel like they're not being included in the business. They're just being included in the uh, in the grunt work part of it. And also I think an apprentice is, is along for like a couple years, right? It's like this person is like following this person around. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, you know, the apprenticeship thing goes back to like the Middle Ages. Yeah. Where, you know, sometimes it'd be 20 years that you would study under the master. But that's because they weren't at a university. You would just find somebody who knew how to do it and follow him and learn from him, and that would be considered, you know, your secondary schooling. Yeah, your education. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ.
zero fez. Um, here is uh, Justin in Texas. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. How you doing? Good. Um, I actually got lucky and had an internship at a pretty well-known studio, which I won't name. Uh, but I actually got hired on after a little bit. But I watched interns come and go. Here they think they're going to get the awesome job to work with uh, big bands and all this stuff like that. When in reality, they were the ones picking the cigarette butts up, uh, unclogging toilets, snaking drains, you know, stuff like that. And uh, these guys would only last a couple months, and they, they would be gone, you know. Half the time, the producers and engineers didn't even want those kids in the studio. So, But here's a funny thing. I have known a lot of record producers. Most of them started as the kid in the back just watching what was going on. I mean, the reality of it is, and I think that the most interesting thing for any kid is that if you could go into the boardrooms and hear people talk, you would realize in a little while, wait, they're no smarter than anyone I've ever met in my life. They might be a little ballsier, they might be a little pushier, but you, in the back of your mind, you, you think that some of these people must be so brilliant to get to these places, and it's rarely true. It's rarely that you will go into a boardroom and run into a genius. just doesn't happen that much. If most kids realize that... Uh, it would help out. Um, Garth, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, man. Um, I work in, in healthcare. I'm a physical therapist. And, and our radio shows. You, you do very well with those, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're both doing good. Um, we we kind of get double hosed on our, on our internships. Um, like they were saying before, you know, we, we have to pay a tuition, and we go out, and we have to work our, our eight-week internships. But what we do is still working as a billable service, so... We go and do an internship that we're paying for, and we're also making money for the place where we're performing the internship, and and we don't ever see any of that. So that that's always been a hard thing for for healthcare professions. Yeah, I would imagine that I would imagine that there is abuse in this, and I would imagine that there are bad ones, and there are good ones. Now, the last three people that we hired were interns. Uh, and I'm talking about for this show only. I think ONA's uh, show runs pretty much the same way that most of those guys, uh, once they came in to this company, after you know, when you come in with your regular guys, after that I think most of their guys have been interns. So it does happen for people. Um, that makes me feel like the system is even more flawed because, like, me and Ba and Shelby are in a position where, like, we're going to school and we have, you know, the means to spend the summer doing something where we're not getting paid. And then, like, you know, we are the people that are going to eventually be hired. Not us specifically, I'm saying, like, in general. Okay. And so then that just, like, provides a, a block of opportunity for people who can't get the internship in the first place. Not due to, like, a lack of, a lack of, like... Educate or not like what not, you're saying is better for rich kids than it yeah, is for poor kids. That it, yeah, it puts people at an extreme disadvantage who don't have the means to have an internship. Well, let me tell you this, and this is going to be a lesson that I'm going to teach you. It's always better to be a rich kid, no matter what anyone tells you. It's better off. You are better off to have money and come from a family that has some money. Yeah. There's your lesson for today. It's it's just true. 
most of the people who... Well, it's very interesting. From doing the Unmasked show, I will tell you, if you want to be a famous comedian, you are better off to have been born in Long Island or North Jersey because you just happen to be close to the New York clubs, be close to the talk shows, the book people, and not be a kid from the city. You need to have that suburban attitude so that the people in the suburbs all over the country can relate to you. Yeah. It's fascinating how many people are f- that have made it really big. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, John Stewart... Ray Romano, that they all live a short train distance. So when they were your age, they were training in and out of the city, but at the same time bringing a suburban attitude to their material. That's just luck and, uh, for lack of a better term, good breeding. Just lucky <laughs> enough to have the right parents who are in the right area. Yeah. Um, you're from Westchester. Yeah. Never met a big comic from Westchester. Not yet. Maybe a little too high end. Maybe. Um, here is um, here's Kevin. Kevin, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, uh, yeah. real quick, just want to let uh, Pepper know that I got him on the prayer list at church, so I hope he's feeling better, man. Um, the the issue that I run into, I've had interns before, and I'm, I'm kind of a middle in the corporate world, nothing big, nothing small. But um, I've never set up internships, but every time I get assigned one, it's a big pain in the ass. I've got this little kid running around, follow me, and it, it, it just sucks. So we give them grunt work to get them out of our hair. So, I mean, that's, I think that's where the great coming from. It's like, I don't care if this kid learns anything. Just leave me the fuck alone. It's kind of my old... old well, what kind of work do you do, Kevin? Um, an analyst at a transportation company. So, would you rather not have an intern in there with you? Absolutely, would rather not. And, and can you go to HR and say, I don't want a kid hanging around here? No, no not really. It's one of those things. I mean, it's kind of a, in a way, an, an honor because you're thought highly enough within your organization. Right, but look what you do with that honor. I mean, really, yeah, I know you don't. Because it's a pain. Yeah, yeah. I agree. You know, uh, I, I don't want, I don't want the kids, but you know, they they throw them our way, and we just kind of churn them and make them do busy reports and shit work, and they don't get a whole lot out of it, to be quite honest. And I think it's like that at a lot of the places. Definitely, I'd venture to say most places. Now we uh, only in the last few years started to get a lot more involved and i say by we i mean chris and pips with working with hr to really find out who the kids are because a lot of times they will stick kids where they don't belong and then we had to go back and fight for shelby (laughs) and um because they thought that he uh interviewed bad and was also I don't know, a little disrespectful, oh, really? I think, is what they thought of him. But we he had sent us stuff, and we were like, no, he's a weird, funny kid. Yeah. We definitely want him. And they were like, he's weird. And we're like, yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's what we're looking for. We want the strange kid. But you could see how bad of an in, uh, out of an interview he would be. Yeah, definitely. I could see that. Because he's nuts ev- everywhere. Um, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's uh, Kevin in Houston. You're on the Run of Fez show. 
Hi, buddy. Yeah. Hi, Ronnie B. I think it goes back to these kids that are suing. They're just a bunch of lazy motherfuckers that want everything given to them, and they don't want to work for anything. It's this self-entitled bullshit that all these fucking kids just grow up with now. Well, that Everybody is a, that, that's the that's the easy old man answer, and I can see that. Uh, I sure. think I felt pretty self entitled when I was younger. I think it took me a few years before I was like, it actually for me took me to doing something that I really wanted to do before I excelled even slightly. When I just had to go out and get jobs for money, I was terrible at it, purposefully. Terrible. At the hotel? Every place I ever worked, I was like, well, how can I get over here? What can I do? You know, I worked in factories and stuff like that, work construction things. Uh, most of the time, I was really, really awful at it. Um, Wait, can I just say something to what yeah. that guy said? That I think um, it's it could be like a self-entitlement issue, but I also, like, if you think about it, these kids, in a way, are, like, working for their pay like it, that this is that this is a way of them taking ownership like this is a, a way of them saying i'm not getting out of this what i want you know but you're also just thinking for yourself uh, uh, speaking for yourself there's so many of those kids who just end up uh doing it because someone told them to do it yeah that's true and they too. show up with what i consider the old ronnie b attitude hey what time is our guest uh and about 15 minutes. About 10 minutes. A little over 10 minutes. What time is my guest? Uh, about 10 minutes after that, arriving. And see, Molly's in charge of both of them. Yes. yes. I figured I'd go out in like five. Or do you mm. want me to go out now? No, you don't have to do a thing. You know what you're doing. We trust your internship. Okay. She is blowing it. I'm going to get this down <laughs> on her permanent record. <sighs> Molly seems to be crazy. Perhaps we change her medication. Um, here is, um, John in Minnesota. You're on the Manifest Show. Hey, Ronnie. Uh, huh. I was about the internships. I mean, when you go for an internship, you're interviewing, so you get some sense of uh, what you're getting yourself into when you're going through that process. But that said, there's kind of giving a get out of that. Like, there's an expectation of what you're going to learn. And there's an expectation of what they're going to get. I mean, at the bottom, bottom line, you're walking out of there with the company's name on your resume or something. But I can speak for myself. With most internships, I didn't really walk out knowing a whole lot of shit different than what I did before. I mean, if you're not out there networking and get into the industry or business that you want to get into, then you know, you're selling yourself short and putting too much on an internship. And I think that's what these students that are doing thought that this was going to be the answer for everything. I did notice this. I think that Pips and Chris are very much harder on you guys than we are because they've done it before. Maybe. Pips, do you feel like you're rough on the interns? I try not to be only because I remember what I went through. So I try to be sympathetic in a sense, but at the same time, I know exactly right, you know what, what you should be what doing. What did you go through? Oh, Chris? No, not like <laughs> Chris. More of just, um, <laughs> you know, messing up on certain things and knowing that it takes some time to get used to the whole environment. And it's overwhelming at first. You know, at Sirius XM, there's a lot going on here. Is that right? Is it overwhelming? I would think so. Molly, were you overwhelmed the first week? Yeah, I think so. It's just like a lot to... Because, you know, 
if you don't do something right, then there's like a direct consequence of that. Because it'll screw up on the air. Yeah. Actually, you can stop things here. Yeah. So if you're running the phones, well, what was um, the thing that they told me yesterday that the guy's name was Bajib and it was David? <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. I'm like, Bajib. And he's like, what? It's David. And I spelled it for the guy who answered the phone. Um, because we used to... Um, the the guy who used to do the the phone screening before, uh, like years ago, was a full time employee, and that kind of thing, that a screw up like that, <laughs> he would have got laid out for. He, we when we used to do this in Florida, the phone screener was in the same room as us. Now this was you know late eighties, early nineties, crazier time. But we used to have a bucket of these hard balls, and whenever he screwed up, we would <laughs> chuck him and hit him in the back with it. We would just throw stuff at him. What do we used to call those balls, Fuzz? The Orbiters. Yeah, we called them Orbiters because that once they, if they missed him, <laughs> they would come up and some come, come back and crash into shit. But now we do not physically hit people for making <laughs> mistakes. We've done away with that. We don't shave people's hair. Uh without their permission we've gotten out you will not be held down and tattooed like the old days <laughs> good old days yeah those things have stopped um pete you're on the run of fed show yeah so uh, i remember my internship probably not a lot different than yours ronnie uh when you started in radio but i remember going to school from nine to five and then doing an overnight show from midnight to six and then doing an internship after my show in between the two and when when you show up, you don't go in going just expecting to do coffee. You go in expecting to work, like do the shit that the other people expect you to do. I mean, of course you're going to get a rough ride if you go in there expecting you're going to be running the place in three weeks like kids are now. But I don't think 15 years ago was that much longer of a time where, you, where we had to grind it out and we were happy to do it. Looking back, greatest time of my life. I slept two hours a day and I had so much fun. Didn't realize it at the time, but internships can be the funnest thing in the world if you enjoy it. Uh, it, it comes down to a lot of people, and if they're having fun in the moment, you can pretty much have fun in the moment, anywhere you're doing, winning or losing. Um, a lot of these kids, though, I feel for them because they owe a ton of money. They owe uh, some of them $100,000, some of them even more, and they're, you know, when they're juniors going into their senior year, it starts to dawn on them, hey, I've got to pay this shit off. And I see them panicking. I see them in a giant panic of what am I going to do with my life. The weird thing is, there's not even as many jobs in radio itself uh, for young people as there used to be. It used to be really a young person's uh, business that the hot morning show in every town were guys in their 20s, uh, maybe early 30s. I very rarely see that kind of show anymore. Um, here's uh, Andres. You're on the Run of Fest show. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, Ron? Yeah. Hey, uh, I just wanted to call in. I have uh, done a good amount of work in uh, political internships, and... Uh, it's pretty much the same thing, even uh, but a lot more competitive. The internships themselves, getting them are, are really tough. And then uh, 
you you get to do uh, some you know some work that you learn, but uh, if you don't ask for it and really push for it, you uh, you'll get stuck doing just basic paperwork and answering phones. Um, but in the end, it's really if you want to do something with uh, politics, uh, even you know some some menial job, you have to have that kind of stuff on your resume. Uh, you know, you are one hundred percent work right. I do think that's how. It started, and I remember a friend of mine when I was a kid, he left on this uh, campaign, uh, and we were like, wait, you're not getting paid? Because I come from kind of a, a blue-collar town where there's no nobody ever went for internships and shit, and he got on the bus and left with this campaign, and I swear to God, I've never seen him since. He just went off into a whole new world. It was like the end of a fucking movie. Just waving goodbye to him, and I never talked to him again. Um, and now every corporation expects that. And there is some tie-in uh, between the co corporate world and the university world for this. Um, here's uh, Glenn. Glenn, you're on the Run of Fest show. Hey, buddies. I'm a film student right outside Philadelphia, and I've been looking into internships in the, uh, the TV networks, and none of them, uh, first off, nobody takes anybody below a junior, but um, you can't do any work. They're all union. So CBS, ABC, NBC, and uh, CW, you can't do any real work other than maybe cataloging, cataloging video footage. Only the uh, Mind Network um, would allow actual editing and actual real work. So I just, I skipped. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do coffee. I'm, I'm going to go another route. Well, you know, the thing is, though, you probably can go in and work for the managers. You know what I mean? So if you really think about it, yeah, the editing and stuff, that's the union jobs. But the guys above them, you will see what those guys think about uh, editors and camera people and stuff like that. It could be interesting for you because it might be your last chance into some of those rooms. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I just I, I I'm already working, um, so I'm I'm already making money in the field, so yeah. I don't feel like I can take a step backward to be yeah. coffee guy. Well, if if you really are going to be a technical guy, you should be happy that the unions take care of those guys and make sure the people aren't in there editing and shooting for free. Yeah, that's true. All right, talk to you later, buddy. Eight six six Ron Zero Fez eight six six. Ron, Zero Fez is our guest. Uh, Close Fez, is he in the building? I just got word he's probably running about 15 minutes late now. Okay. Um, but so he's not here yet. Um, yeah, exactly. He's running about 15 minutes behind. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Um, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, let's go over here to John. John, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, million bucks. Um, you mentioned before that uh, some of the older employees in places don't want the younger people around. Um, and my, my thought was, I am a younger person, uh, uh, but I'm getting older now. Now I'm 34 years old. I have a master's degree. Um, and I'm doing the job of a person who might have been coming out of college as like a 20-something-year-old. Right. Um, so when when does that chance, with all the debt that's been racked up by all of us, these older people are holding on to their jobs for even longer, and now 
when do I get my shot at it? I'm slugging it out, like you said. But when do I get my shot at it? When I'm 50? When I'm 55? Yeah, I don't know how that would work. What time? What type of work do you do? I'm a teacher, except um, yeah. uh, I've had my master's for years, but I'm only at a TA capacity, a teacher assistant capacity, because there's no teaching jobs. No, they. you tell us that, and yet all I ever hear about is people complaining how bad the schools are. Yeah, well, you want to know what? I bet they are. I bet they are in some areas. I'm out. I'm out in like Long Island in some nice in some nice places. Mm -hmm. But um, but it, I mean, it, it's a problem for a lot of teachers. I mean, I applied for a position um, that 1,600 other applicants, other teachers, certified teachers, applied for the same position. That's wild, man. People, it's crazy. It's crazy. And you know, I, I'm fine with doing the work and slugging it out, but I do want to have my chance to to do what I want to do before I'm like 50 years old, and I think a lot of young people are going to be encountering this problem as people work older and older to pay off their debt and their houses mm -hmm. and everything else. So, yeah. uh, all right, say it, pal. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's Eric in New York. You're on the Ron and Fez show. Hey, hey, we're good. Oh, sorry. Hey, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, uh, back in the 90s, I did an internship. It was the best. It was for a celebrity chef in uh, Manhattan. Uh, I had a great time. It, I learned so much. I mean, this, you know, the different people coming through the kitchen and, like, the different foods that I would never have a chance to, you know, to try, like, you know, foie gras, caviar, and different oysters. It was just, it was just so much fun. You you wait. You are a chef, but you had never eaten these foods before. No, well, I was a kid. I was I was nineteen. I was doing an internship. Uh huh. And you know, you, you just, that stuff's you know expensive. You don't really you don't you don't handle it that much if you're not really in uh, you know. Well, the uh, chef work is definitely one that was one hundred percent one of those. Uh, Jobs that you would apprentice for years and years and years under one guy. You know oh, what I'm yeah. saying? So you would, I mean, the way that you went and did this as an internship would have uh, really is a throwback in that uh, industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you still a chef now? Uh, yeah, not, well, not full time. I still have a hand in it. You know, I do, I do it on the weekends now, uh, but. Um, they did hire me after my internship, so, you know. Right, who is the celebrity chef? Uh, his name is Larry Forgione. I don't know his work. Uh, well, you might see his son on TV right now, Mark Forgione. He's one of the iron chefs, but. Okay. Uh, he had a restaurant called An American Place. Uh, it was like, it was on 32nd and Park, uh, years ago. But he does a lot of consulting work now, but. All right, bro. Thanks. All right. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. We got talking about this, the fact that the interns, some interns are suing uh, for doing free work for these uh, businesses and not learning the business. Now, Pips, you started as an intern for us. Do you feel like you train these kids in the, what the business really is? I think this is the best show to be on because you do get hands-on experience. I think I train them well enough that they can start the job. And anywhere else, I don't see what they're doing here. I will tell you this. 
to me, you sound like you got a fucking gun to your head. You honestly feel like you're one of those North Koreans <laughs> who are forced to say things. Are you saying other that you see some of the other interns around here? Yeah, I mean, especially the biggest point was with Dana. She was just sitting on computer all day on Facebook, you know, and, and most of the other shows, they're just sitting there doing nothing. It's sad. But so are the shows themselves. Well, that's true. Uh, you can't. <laughs> Really go by that. So you would think some of these kids, you can understand why they're pissed off. I did not even know until last semester that these kids paid the college to come and work here. Oh, it's thousands. It's ridiculous. I think I, didn't I paid know like that. three grand. It's insanity. Uh, Tim, you're on the run of Fez show. Hey, fellas. Yeah, when when I was coming up through school, I was a young kid, and, and I had to do uh, my clinicals for, for being an EMT. And I went out with one of the big EMT agencies here on Long Island, and, and the guys really took it a... You really are hands-on, you're involved, and you really learn in the process. But the guys who were mentoring me were trying to kind of make a contest to see who could make me puke the quickest. Well, see, here's and the thing. If I had just had a stroke or a heart attack, the last thing I want to say is a fucking intern helping out. Well, you're not, you're not, I mean, when you're, when you're doing your internship and your clinicals, you're the guy bringing in the stretcher, you're the guy carrying the bags, you're just right there, you, you're doing CPR, you're doing chest compressions, things like that, you're not actually... You're not doing you know, a tracheotomy on anybody. Yeah, you're not, you're not starting lines or anything like that, but, man, the day they made me puke, you would have thought they just won the Super Bowl, I mean, they were high-fiving each other, and I, I was laughing too, as puke is coming out my nose, but Jesus, I mean, talk about trial on the fire. Uh, John, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, what's up, buddy? How are you? Good, man. Uh, you know, I hear you talking about people and how that, you know, they got where they are with their jobs. How did you become a radio host? I'm just curious. How did you start off? Uh, what did you have to do to get where you are? Uh, what happened with me is that I had a comedy club and would bring comics down to promote my comedy club. And from there, they asked me to stay on. And, okay. You yeah. got promoted from within? Um, no, not really. It's I, I had no real thought about radio at all before I started doing it. Oh, so you just kind of like, oh, that's cool, I'm going to go with it? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and then I ended it. up falling in love with the business, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's what it is, the love of the business. And so many people are running around trying to figure out, oh my God, I want to be like a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer. And, you know, if you enjoy talking or just being, you know... A broadcast person, I guess it just falls into place, right? Well, the funny thing about it is most people don't realize that most jobs these days, no matter what you look at it, is somewhat of a service job, right? Sure, so if it's the type of thing that you like to do, then you end up not thinking about it as a job. I laugh half the time that I'm doing this because most of the time what I'm doing now... I used to do instead of going to fucking school. I would stand <laughs> yeah. on the corner yeah. or be riding around in the car, arguing uh, about different topics, bands, politics, art, yeah, music. Yeah. It's it the same good. shit that yeah. I get paid for. It's the same exact stuff. So if you like doing that, you know, but you try to tell that to young people, and they honestly say it to you a lot of times, I don't know what I want to do. And I believe them. I really do think with a lot of people, it takes a lot of years. Pips, what what made you want to do radio? 
Um, actually, an internship made me want to do radio. Not here, but a previous one was so bad, I was going to be in business and whatever the hell that would lead me into. But the internship was so bad at, um, I think it was at Barnes & Noble, that I hated it. In a cubicle, with all these people running around in their suits and ties. They're all miserable. I see this. Everyone hates the job. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, this is my life? This is what I'm going to do 20 years from now? I'm like, no. So I sat, thought around, what do I love? And I'm thinking, I love radio. I listen to O&A, Ron and Fez, all the time. Th this is what, my, what I want to do. I want to talk. I want to do production. I want to do all this stuff. And then I went after it. And luckily, it came true. You were like a little animal when you came in here, too. You were like a little beast. You were just fucking doing everything. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's John in Long Island. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, you know... The other alternative to being saddled with debt is to go into the union trades because I'm a project manager for a commercial construction firm. These guys, they get out of school at 18, they're making 40 bucks an hour. By the time they're 23, they're making a buck 50 a year. I just don't see how school adds up. I'm saddled with my school loans for an MBA in my 40s, and it just doesn't add up. You know, I, I, I don't know. You go to work at 7 o'clock, you get home at 2.30, you leave at 2.30, and you don't think about the rest of the day. It's pretty good life if you really can do it. And is there enough work out there now? Well, in, in New York City, yeah, there's always work. You know, there's a lot of, like, for example, there's 10,000, maybe 15,000 carpenters, and there's probably 5,000 on the bench. But a lot of those guys are just idiots. You know, those were the goof-offs in shop class that, you know, oh, I'm going to be a union carpenter. Yeah. You know, but if you're, if you're a conscientious guy that puts in an honest day's work, You'll, you'll work forever, no problem. There's enough work out there. I can't imagine anything more rewarding than knowing that you were involved with some big major project. You know what I mean? Just some, you know, a bridge, a giant building, a dam. That's the kind of shit that we've kind of gotten away from in this country and is what built the country. Well, I'll say this about the World Trade Center where I'm working. A lot of people wanted to take that job. Mm -hmm. Such a political nightmare, and uh, you know people are losing money on the job. It really, all comes down to greenbacks, not uh, pride doing the work. So that's my perspective as a project. So how is that building? I mean, now you're making me feel a little nervous about it. No, I, I, listen. The work is top notch. It's quality. It's been done by uh, everybody. But uh, the Port Authority is just such a political football. It and, is. You know, they want things that, you know, that, that building was supposed to be done by 2014. I don't see that thing being done until 2017, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. You know, I can see it out the, the window here, and it looks like it was going up so fast, and then everything seemed like it slowed down a little bit. But, yeah, the, what they call the superstructure is that usually goes up pretty quickly, and then, and then the different phases on the inside of the building... Uh, you know, like the mechanicals and the electricals, that takes a little bit more time. And when Sandy hit, the first four, uh, I'm probably like getting in trouble for this, but the first four floors of the basement were flooded and there were like bluefish swimming in the basement. All right, uh, that's, that's incredible. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's Doug. Doug, you're on the Run of Fez show. Roddy B, Million Bucks, buddy. Hey, buddy. Uh, so listen, 82, all right, I went to Northeastern University, and uh, my first internship was at uh, Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb, uh, and, uh, which obviously doesn't exist anymore, sure. but I worked 
as a cold caller for this guy named Klaus von Stuttgart. I will never forget it, and I swear to God it's true. And uh, he was uh, stationed in New York. He's a big-time uh, money manager. And, uh, but they, his girlfriend went to BU uh, at the business school, so that he moved to Boston, of course, in like Beacon Hill. And, uh, but when I would answer the calls for him, I'd have to pretend like I was in New York because he didn't want anybody to know that he was in Boston. I used to have to run his political errands. I would have to go and uh, pick up his dry cleaning. I mean, that was my internship. Plus, make cold calls and try and get crazy people for the best money. Well, you were doing, and also you were helping to ruin our economy and make a lot of people broke. And That was awesome. Yeah, the worst people that you will ever meet in the world are those guys downtown. Oh, he was a crazy guy. They're just uh, the worst. And sometimes when you see those guys in restaurants, it's like Nazis during 1940, where they, they just come into a place and take it over and start uh, throwing food. Uh, we've got Terrence Stamp, the actor, coming in in just a little bit. Uh, brand new movie coming out called Unfinished Song. I'm going to break first, Fezzi. And uh, we'll be right back. Terrence Stamp coming up in a few minutes. It's the Ron Fez Show. The Ron and Fez Show on the Open Anthony Show. Serious XM. <laughs> You've been warned. I'm on three different It's the Ron Fez Show. 
Coming up in just a couple minutes, Terrence Stamp is going to be here. You know Terrence Stamp from a million movies, including the fact that he all but owned London in the 1960s. Uh, then his big comeback in... 1978, when he played General Zod in Superman and Superman 2. He was in Wall Street as Sir Larry Wildman. Uh, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. The Limey is one of the finest films you'll ever see. He was in Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, Valkyrie, Yes Man. Uh, the list goes on and on. He's an unfinished song right now with Vanessa Redgrave that is out now. Uh, but coming up in just a few minutes, uh, Terrence Stamp. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. It is the Ron and Fez show. Uh, also coming up a little later on. I'm going to talk to a guy that I used to know very, very well many, many years ago who is now doing great for himself. Started his own uh, public relations business, Max Borges. Gorgeous Max Borges, we used to call him. Now sitting uh, uh, in a whole new place. It's been many, many years since I've had the opportunity to talk to him. And uh, one of the things I love to have on the show is entrepreneurs, self-made guys. Uh, Tito from Tito's Vodka is a guy who kept working many, many years to get the his business up as far as making his product, going out and pitching his product, getting it in bars and stores. And it's amazing to me how many people don't know a lot of this, these stories. You know, we have a tendency that you have to be to Bill Gates before most people will know your story, but uh, we were talking about these internships. They are, they're better served learning from some self-made men and women than they always are just jumping into the corporate game. Um, so we'll have him on, and I'm going to catch up with him, and I told him, do not tell me anything off the air. I can only know about this on the air. If it's off the air, it uh, it's wasted. No one hears it. Let's go over here to Will in Pennsylvania. You're on the Ron and Fez show. What's up, Ron? Hey. You know, I'm actually uh, on the beach right now, but yeah, my own dad's bought, my dad's company actually started out as a uh, lawn mowing business. And they worked all the way up, and now they have um, offices all over the world, like in Abu Dhabi, uh, Italy, London, Spain. And he started just from a lawnmowing business. Well, yes, he did. And that's going to be tough because there can't be a lot of stuff to mow in Abu Dhabi. You would think to yourself, not a great place to take a lawnmower. All right, we're going to bring Terrence Stamp in. As I said, this guy all but owned the 1960s. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look it up, he's dated the most beautiful women in the world. Julie Christie, Bridget Bardot, Jean Shrimpton. He was uh, mod uh, London back in the 1960s. He's now had one of the greatest acting careers of all time. You'll see him in a new movie for the Weinstein Company um, that is out right now called Unfinished Song. Let's bring in Mr. Terrence Stamp. Two, two, three. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all of your things. 
talk about sex for now, but the people at home or in the crowd, it keeps coming up anyhow. Don't decoy, avoid, or make void the topic, because that ain't gonna stop it. We talk about sex on the radio and video shows, and any will know anything goes. Let's tell it how it is and how it could be. How it was and of course how it should be Hot to trot, make any man's eyes pop She used what she got to get whatever she don't got Tell us true like fools But there again they're only human Let's talk about sex Terrence Stamp in studio with us, the new movie out called Unfinished Songs, already doing great all over the world. But it's interesting for me to see Terrence Stamp in a role that is not bigger than life. This is a <laughs> You're playing a guy in this in this film. Always difficult for me, Rob. <laughs> not easy to bring yourself down to our size? Well, it's not that. It's just that, you know, the screen, the camera loves me. Uh, uh -huh. I, I do ordinary very good in the theatre, but it's hard for me to, to you know, do this kind of character in film, really. Is this the... When, when you see... a. Uh, uh, a, a script like this do you think to yourself if you hadn't made some choices when you were younger this would have kind of been the life that you could have lived yes and um and it was and i based it on my own mom and dad because that was the kind of life that they'd lived mm -hmm. and my dad was a stoker in the merchant navy from when he was 15. he left the navy to marry my mother when war broke out or when war was imminent he went back into the navy because he thought Otherwise, he'd be called up, be a soldier, you know. Mm -hmm. And when the war ended, um, he'd been torpedoed. He'd been shipwrecked three times. And he was old. He was gray. He was still 28, but he was old. And the grace had been kind of eroded from him as a man. So I never remember him showing any love for me or hugging me or touching me, really. So I based it on my dad. And what was really kind of interesting about m my life, I guess, was that when we first got our, when we got our first TV, I was about 17. And I had never spoken about my dream of being a, a performer. And I started commenting about actors. I could do better than that, you know. <laughs> and he wore it for a couple of days. And then he said, son, people like us don't do things like that. And I went to protest and he said, son, I don't want you to talk about it anymore. So you think that he did that from a, a place of trying to protect you? Yeah, protect ab absolutely. You. I yeah. mean, it was out of the question. It was out of the question for a man like him. If I'd have said, well, I'd fancy being an astronaut, there was more likelihood of that and becoming an actor. And there was such a strong class system in England at that time, too, where you really, um, it, people weren't moving up and down, correct? It, it only really changed with, with the, the music of the 60s, you know, and the 60s itself. Until then, it was extremely rigid in every way, and it was, it was reflected in the way you spoke, and it was a in the way your manners and what you wore and and um 
I never remember a stranger coming into our house because we were so poor. We didn't have rugs. We had what lino, and we didn't have a kitchen. We had a scullery, and we didn't have a bathroom. We didn't have a the lavatory was in the yard, you know. So my first efforts really were what I wore because I thought as nobody comes into our house, what I wear, what, what people see is all they see. So I was very conscious from very early on about how I looked, you know, my appearance and stuff. But when I became an actor, the, 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 the upside of that is that when I made my first movie and it was so well received I thought man I can do this I yeah. can make a living of this I can do something I love for a living so it was like a miracle and I think a big part of it came through too Terence is that you were authentic that that life that you had lived up to that point you were able to bring to the screen um, unlike a lot of people who started in the theater is very early on and were kept away from that kind of life I think it was a great opportunity in my life because when I came out of drama school the first kids that had been educated like the law changed in the 40s and it was possible for all children to pass this 11 plus mm -hmm. and go on merit and get a good education and that started to bear fruit with Harold Pinter with Willis Hall with you know the great working class playwrights yeah and they were writing about themselves and that their friends and their upbringing and they required actors who were similar so consequently people like Albert Finney, people like Peter O'Toole, who would never have got a job unless they'd become something else, yeah. you know. The timing. Yes, it was just, the, the magic was the timing. Yeah. And the timing itself is, when you were in London in the 1960s, it probably was one of the most exciting times in the history of the world, and one of the biggest changes that ever took place of that youth culture just exploding like that. I would absolutely agree with you, Ron. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with you. And did you get it at the time? Did it, did it seem to you like, oh my God, this, you know, I'm, I'm right exactly at ground zero here? No. I thought it was just happening to me, you know, mm -hmm. because I'd been so poor and underprivileged that when I became famous, I just assumed it was happening to me. It wasn't till like around 66 that I realized it was just a it was happening to everybody. So nobody was aware of the 60s until around 66, 67. And then they went, oh, something is happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's after the pill and before AIDS, you know. Yeah. So it was a good time to be a young guy. Great music. All of a sudden, you guys are making great films. Yeah. Everything. Uh, I wouldn't get too much into your private life, but you dated the most amazing women I think that ever walked on the on the planet Earth. Uh, the pictures of you in the 1960s. I'm happy to hear you say. That. <laughs> I mean, I it's look too much to with, ask for. I look back with great affection at being careless with my heart. <laughs> uh, but uh, you walked away 
from all that? Went no, off no, no, I didn't walk away. You did not walk away. No, I'm sorry to have to correct you on that. Mm -hmm. I was uh, overlooked. Is that right? Yeah, I swear to God. After 69, I couldn't get arrested. Because from my point of view, it looked like you just decided to go to India, much as George Harrison and those type of people. Long before all those guys. Went. Yeah. But, and I went from necessity. I went to avoid facing the disappointment of the day-to-day -day silent telephone. I had no idea. Yeah. Weeks became months, months became years, and I couldn't bear it. I was a young man, you yeah. understand? And so I thought, well, what else did I want to do when I was young? What else did I dream of doing as a boy? And the answer came, well, you wanted to travel. So I bought a round-the-world ticket, first class. Mm -hmm. I went to Egypt. But when I discovered India, when I landed in Bombay, it's sort of, uh, I got it. I thought I can... I became, I realized I was an adept pupil. And I started meeting creatures that seemed lit from within, you know. Unfortunately, I mm. met the real thing. I mean, I met great masters, you know. Krishnamurti, Nisargadatta. I met people who had wisdom, you know. So I didn't stay there in a block, you know. Occasionally I'd come back, I'd get a commercial, I'd get a few days on an independent movie, I'd make a few bob, then I'd fly back to Bombay. And then from Bombay, I went somewhere different every time. So that was my experience. But it was a rich experience. Mm -hmm. And the call didn't come. The call didn't come until 77, when I got the famous telegram, badly, wrongly addressed, from Dick Donner, you know. And so all of a sudden, after these years spending in, in, in India, only coming back occasionally, you find yourself in another giant blockbuster. Were you prepared for that again? Or did, uh, you know, all of a sudden the fame is back? Or did it not mean as much to you? I was more than ready. Yeah. But the fame didn't mean anything. Yeah. Fame was bullshit, you know. I, what I'd missed was the work. Right. What I'd missed was the isness of acting you know the what is of performing that's what i meant i was so hungry for that i was so hungry that i accepted a villain i was a leading man you know mm -hmm. but i wasn't a leading man i'd be i transmuted into a character actor you know and i th and it was only later that i thought my god you know robert redford wouldn't have done this Right. Warren Beatty wouldn't have done this. And I've done it. I've got away with it. So I was kind of fearless, really. And consequently, I had a very long career because I could do anything. Once I no longer had an, uh, an opinion about myself mm -hmm. as a leading man, I could do anything. You know, and I did. And that was the way I kept renewing myself. I kept doing things I hadn't done before. So it was certainly better um, the time off and then coming back for you. It enriched your career quite a bit. It, it enriched your work. In retrospect, it was yeah. the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And because, you know, I mean, if you're going to have a long career, either you start late, mm -hmm. like Jack Nicholson didn't start till after he was 30, you know, or Kerry Grant had a lull in the middle. 
And that's what happened to me. It was just I didn't... I was just disappointed at the time. But with hindsight, yeah, it was the making of me, really, as a performer. Uh, in the new film that uh, you've done, uh, for the Weinstein Company, and if you want to go check this out, you can go to Weinstein.com. But in Unfinished Songs, so much of the work is so internal that you see that this guy is battling himself inside, but he never explains it to us, the audience. Um, we don't know where his pain comes from. We just meet him at a certain time of his life where he's had all this pain. Yeah, he's he's emotionally closed down, mm -hmm. which happened to a lot of people. And it happened to a lot of people of that generation because they were parented by people who lived through World War II, you know. Mm. And I, I don't think it's kind of natural to kill other people, you know. And I think that there's a whole generation that had to do that and, and at great price, you know. And so this man was emotionally closed down. The trick for me, the complicated part of the characterization, was the overall trajectory. Because when he, he loses the object of his affection, there's a kind of overwhelming sort of grief, you know. But out of that, it's the, that's the start of the redemption. Mm. It's the great. It's only great pain that enables you to kind of uh, break through the callousness around your heart. You know, so it was about a man uh, finding his own voice, and what a better way to symbolise that than to learn to sing. You know, and so many of the lessons in life are through pain. So many of the lessons that we have in life are just through dealing through pain. Um, not so much of having a, a blessed life, but just the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, the, the problem with having a blessed life is that uh, you get used to that. Mm -hmm. and, but the way for evolution, I mean, the way that, that the individual grows usually is, is through, the, through the pain of life, you know. My mother was a great optimist, you know, and my mother always used to say, uh, these things are sent to try us. <laughs> <laughs> these things are sent to try us. You know? But I realized that, that they did strengthen my mother. can imagine how tough my mother's life was, bringing up five children on never more than 12 pounds a week, you know, with a husband who was like a secret alcoholic, you know, and emotionally closed down, you know. But she did grow bigger, and consequently, when I started encountering the, the big difficulties in my life, that came back to me, you know, and I thought, if I can get through this, I'll come out of it empowered, you know. That was part of your work in India? That was what you were working on, those type of things? I guess so. I mean, mm -hmm. the, thing I, the thing that I guess the main thing I, I came, I learned in India was that, you know, Power over others is slavery, you know what I mean? Power over oneself is mastery. And, um, and also there was a kind of, I was, I watched, I observed people who lived the understanding that 
the very best of them, the bare kind of awareness of life was kind of self-illuminating, you know. And it was that that kind of consciousness that thought comes from and emotions come from and awareness can know them but they can never know it you know it's like an abstract for thought you know so either there has to be a kind of profound understanding that that's what one really is that's what one truly is and that's not subject to the passage of time you know because i can remember as a boy being thrown back on myself remember the first time i saw snow there was a kind of silence and as i in india i began to realize that that silence was what i was but it was always there and it wasn't stained by the passage of time and that was and that was the the big kind of the open secret that mm -hmm. I, I began to live when I was in India and then when I came back then I was kind of immune to the kind of the, the trappings of success and you can still get back there Terry anytime you want you can still get back to that silent place yes, in yourself. I mean, usually yes, mm -hmm. yes I, I mean I don't want to make too big a deal of it but, mm -hmm. it, but you know when I'm working my work, you know, when I hear action, <laughs> it's a kind of reminder to be present in the present, you know. It's well, it's, it's really fascinating how little we are present in the present, how many times it days and weeks and months can go by and we're not paying any attention at all. It happens to us all the time. Yeah, no, I know. The, the, the present is kind of is happening while we're thinking about something else yeah that's my condition you know so i'm very lucky to to have this reminder factor in the fact that that's what i do you know when the film is turning it reminds me to be there which is kind of empty which is can be very uh, frightening you know when you're on a movie right getting paid a lot of money and people expect something it's it's a bit it's very intimidating to think i can be empty here but empty is different from vacant, you know. Isn't it interesting, too, that we have to keep learning this same lesson over and over? Even though you may know it, it's gone unless you're working on it. Yeah, on because it's, 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 it's what you are, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and it's not what you think, it's not what you feel, it's what you are. And, uh, and it's not anything that can be done. If you're doing something, you already missed it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, this film, Unfinished Song, I think, is interesting for men because there's one thing we don't talk about, but we accept that we'll never do. We do not want to bury our loved ones. We don't want, we expect to be buried first. And every man believes that in his soul without ever expressing it. I will go first. Because uh, burying someone we love is way worse than dying, I think, for men. I think, I think for, yeah, I think, I think for most people, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that spoken to a lot of men about who've lived through death of a loved one, you know, and, and they feel guilt because they realize they're going to lose their wife 
Yeah. And they feel guilty that they're going to be still alive, you know, and they're going to be left and they're going to be abandoned, you know. And um, I think there's a lot. Well, it's a fact. I mean, that is the mm -hmm. kind of fact. But to me, you know, the idea of death, I mean, it's the price of having had an individuality. That's the, that's the receipt for all of this. Yes. The price. Death is the price of being, having been individual, you know. And it's one that you have to accept. You have to accept that deal to... You've got no option. <laughs> you have no option whatsoever. Good luck if you're trying to avoid it, you know. <laughs> and we do. Or just put it off for just yes, a little yes, longer. Yes, exactly. exactly. Uh, it's Unfinished Song, uh, Terrence Stamp. Thank you so much. No, Ron, lovely to talk to you, mate. Lovely Sa to talk to you. Same uh, here. I could, I could go on like this for hours. It's so great to have you stop by. And, and thank you for all the work. And again, I'm sorry that you... Uh, suffered broken hearts but what a life that you've lived the things that you've done has just been amazing and who's fez fez is over there there he is waving with the most amazing mustache he I've does ever seen. have quite the mustache look at that tash man yeah and it's he is prize winning tash by the it? way he's just being while you and i are doing stuff he's just being because he is well, i'll see you next time coming through my friend bless Take your heart. Good night, my angel, time to close your eyes And save these questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you and you should always know wherever you may go no matter where you are I never will Good night, my angel. Now it's time to sleep. And still, so many things I want to say. Remember all the songs you sang for me when we went sailing on an emerald bay. Inside this ancient heart, you'll always be a part of me. You're enjoying the Run and Fest show on Sirius XM's OP and Anthony channel. 
more in moments. It's the Ryan Fed Show. Power over others is slavery. Power over oneself is mastery. Terrence Stamp fucking laying it on us. That was my favorite line. And then my other favorite line was, And now who's Fez? The, the wonderful stash. Uh, those British guys from that generation... He, uh, Peter O'Toole, Albert Finney, uh, Michael Caine, um, those guys were kind of the last men on the planet. After that, everybody kind of became fanboys. But uh, those guys were really, really uh, bigger than life. Here's Tony in Brooklyn. Tony, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'll tell you something. When when he was, uh, I was a little kid when he was Zod in, in Superman Two. But Neil like, before Walt, Zod. Neil before Zod. But when he was uh, Sir Lawrence Wilder in Wall Street, and he had that one scene with Michael Douglas where he drove out to the Hamptons. Yeah. And uh, Charlie Sheen gave the Sunson uh, Art of War speech. I mean, you could just see the gaze about him, like he was just looking right through you. He's an intense individual and a tremendous actor. I love him. Well, he was a, a very intense guy even to come in here. And I love the guys that are like, uh, like when I did the joke with him, that I'm not used to seeing him being a regular guy like he is in this uh, movie, is because he has a tendency to play bigger than life. And just sitting in here, he's like a bigger than life guy. Roddy, one thing I'll say about all here is I appreciate the fact that you bring uh, older people in here that have the wisdom of life experience. It really makes for compelling interviews, more so than other, you know, paparazzi culture people today. Well, yeah, okay? it's well, yeah, everyone always say, oh, you do such great interviews. But it's because I don't have to interview Kim Kardashian that makes it a lot fucking easier that... You know, because it's serious, I get to talk to the people that I want to talk to. But it's really funny that you bring up about the older people, because it is... Most people do not have a tendency to be able to think about what happened until they get a little distance from it. Um, like, normally, if you talk to a guy who's had four hit movies in a row, it doesn't even dawn on him that it's happening because he's moving so fast why it happens. It's only after the fact. Uh, old, uh, retired athletes 
think about their careers so much more than guys that are athletes right now. They're just trying to make it through. But once they can look back and say, oh, here's what happened back in the 80s, uh, they become far better interviewers. Uh, Fez, I'm going to take a... Um I'm going to listen to Mr. Terrence Stamp and get you involved in this. You and your lovely mist- uh, your lovely stash. Quite a lovely stash. What is it that's on your mind today? Well, it's the new Lil Wayne video that's out. He was shooting a video for his new song, uh, God Bless America. America with a K, by the way. And in this footage from the video shoot, you see him walking, uh, a giant American flag drops on the ground behind him. And then he walks and dances on it after that. And he's catching so much heat on Twitter. People saying they're furious with him, they're no longer a fan, because he desecrated the American flag. Do you believe that, though? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. See, I'd rather see someone like Wheezy do this with the American flag in a protest song. I'm sorry, who's Wheezy? Little Wayne. Oh, I didn't know that you called him Wheezy. Yeah, he's also known as Wheezy. I didn't know that you were such a big fan. Well, I just started... Well, basically, this is the only song I know, and it hasn't been released yet. When did you learn that his nickname was Wheezy? When I was reading about people hating on Wheezy now for, um... For walking on the flag and dropping it on the ground. So you see that as a good thing? I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. Because, if, I mean, I think some of the lyrics in the new song are, you know, America, land of the free, home of uh, kill them all and let them die. This is a protest song. It's a protest. He at least knows what he's doing with the American flag. All I'm saying is this. Uh, Louise Jefferson is Wheezy. No one else. She was the first Wheezy. All right, so you you like uh, a good protest song. Well, I, I love what he's doing here because he's actually paying more attention to the American well, what, flag. What is he protesting against? Uh, well, he's shooting the video in New Orleans, so I'm assuming that it's about the forgotten Katrina victims, especially yeah. when he's saying, let them die. So he's shooting it with a bunch of New Orleans uh, locals. They're all in the video as well. Okay. So it's a protest against how those people got left forgotten for weeks, days, months, still, years later. Mm. Forgotten. And to use the American flag like that in a protest, I have no problem with. Because it's showing... You've changed quite a bit. You used to be all about flag etiquette years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. There's well, a lot of things that have changed about me. Well, what happened? What, what made the change where you're like, I love when they stamp on the flag now? Because I've seen what people who are patriotic tend to do with the flag. What's that? Uh, it gets turned into a beach towel. It gets worn as a hat. My Not aunt the real had... flag, though. No, but that's... They still... have beach towel flags. But, I mean, or or flag beach towels. Well, but it's not an actual flag. No, but it's still the image of the flag, even though it's terry cloth. It's still taking the flag's image. It's still considered desecrating it under, mm. the, under the rules of the government here. All right. So I have no problem with Wheezy doing this because... Louise Jefferson? No, Lil Wayne. Because he's actually realizes what the American flag means, and he's using it in a protest. Here's Someone... Ben. Ben, you're on the run of Fest show. 
Yeah, I hate to tell Fez, but uh, there's a couple little Wayne lyrics that he might not like. Like when he says, you homo, and words getting AIDS in the ass. So, oh, oh I don't care for that at all. Fezzy. This is the only song yeah. I knew. Weezy. You're being on the side of a homophobe? I ended up on the side of a homophobe. I don't like that at all. I think it's the assuming that threw you off instead of uh, the knowing for it. So he can desecrate the flags. Just don't desecrate the fags. Okay, there you have it. Wheezy. Now you're against the Fez? Yeah, now I think it's just awful. Okay. All right, it is the Ron and Fez Show, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Coming up a little later on the show, I'll be talking to an old buddy of mine, Max Borges. Uh, he's going to tell us what he's been up to throughout the years. Looks like he's doing a nice shindig in New York City. Um, here's uh, Josh in Miami. Josh, you're on the Ron and Fez Show. Hey guys, hey! I just it, Lil Wayne actually sent out a tweet saying he didn't try to step on the flag. For the record, I think he was just trying to say he wanted the flag to drop to reveal the people, but in doing so, he stepped on it, and that's what everybody was up in arms about. So I think it wasn't deliberate. This is not uh, obviously this is not a well-researched uh, opinion, uh, and we're now turning our back on him, Fez, because of the anti-gay stuff. Uh, yeah, I hate I hate the fact that he's anti-gay, and I hate the fate the fact that he's cowering now. That he did do a flag protest thing, he still dropped it on the ground on purpose. It, it's point counterpoint with Fez Watley versus himself as he goes back and forth on Little Wayne. Uh, why is he taking this back? Run zero Fez. Uh, Bear, you're on the Run of Fez show. Uh, yeah, Fez. If you think it's right. Let me just say this, and I'm going to stick up for Fez here. He's not sure what he believes or why he believes it. Uh, Dave, you're on the run of Fez show. Yeah, I mean, is it hot? Is it cold? I mean, this, this guy he comes out on the subject, and now he has one, one thing about the derogatory about homosexuals, and now he's against it. It I is mean, tough. It's tough to have an opinion in this world when you find out that some people turn out to be anti-gay. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. I'm going to bring in um, uh, Ba here for just a second. Bob wants to talk us, to us about the fact that they are now giving college scholarships to kids that are really, really young. Uh, I don't think this is something we used to do before. They used to make a big deal that... Um, some of these kids in high school were being bothered for it. But, by you're telling us now, and this is up on the interrobang.com, how young are people being offered scholarships? There are, there are people that are offered as young as 12. 12 years old? Yeah. In basketball, Kentucky former coach Billy Gillespie hired a, or offered a scholarship to a kid that was 12. Yeah. Which I think is unbelievable because... 
Except from the fact that who knows if he's even going to be that good. What if he stops growing? All right. So let's say this: if the kid accepts at age twelve, right? Does he get a scholarship even if he twists his knee, rolls his ankle? Is that still his scholarship? It depends on whether or not he accepts it. Because you could be offered a scholarship right. and not accept it. If you accept the scholarship, they may be able to get out of it at a later date. A lot of these things have kind of contingencies in them. You know, if you blow your knee out tomorrow, right. they we're going to rescind your scholarship. So, so it, why would anyone say, I'm going to do anything... If it doesn't mean anything once you blow your knee out. They would say that because it gives you like a foot in the door. You know, uh, it, Matt Barkley and Jimmy Clausen were heavily touted quarterbacks when they were in high school. Mm-hmm. And Notre Dame and USC had to fight to get them. So they, a lot of these coaches think if we can get Jimmy Clausen when he's in 8th grade. But the kid could change his mind between 8th grade and 11th grade. Absolutely. So are these things just showboating more than anything? Pretty much. A lot yeah. of, you'll see a lot of schools... Lesser-known schools will try to go after kids. UCLA offered a kid that was 14. He's an 8th grader to play quarterback. But yeah. he may... That coach might not even be there in four years. Jim Moore Jr. might be fired. We have no idea what could happen. All right, so who who are some of these young people being offered stuff right now? The biggest one, the most recent one, was Cody Riley. He's a 13-year-old, offered a scholarship from the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive for him. We saw... Our Davies Ham, 15-year-old Mark Rick, offered him a scholarship from Georgia last e- last week. Yeah. So we, we have no idea what a 15-year-old defensive end is going to do. Forget what he's going to do in high school. What is he going to do when he gets to college? There's so much vari- there's so many variables there. Well, I don't know if you if you follow European soccer, but they'll take the kids and basically hire them as a pro at 13, 14 years old. They play, I guess, in some kind of pro teenage leagues. Uh, Arbor, I guess it was their version of like minor leagues, and then they woke up. But if you look at, I think the Spanish soccer team, all those guys have been playing together since they were little kids. A lot of those, the soccer they have the developmental leagues, which gives teams or countries the opportunity to season players. Yeah, but in college football, you don't have that because there's only a finite number of scholarships. So if a player can't play or is not good, they often release you. See, they used to do. Uh, uh, I don't know whether it was unlimited, but there would be a lot more. And then they would say schools like, let's say, Notre Dame, that had a lot of money, would give out 100 scholarships. A lot of the guys would be more or less get a free education to stay on the bench. They did away with that. But in a lot of ways, at least kids were going to good schools and getting an education. Uh, But I guess they worried that it hurt competition. It hurts competition because everyone wants to be a Notre Dame Golden Domer, right? Everyone right. wants to be a USC Trojan, but they're, you just because you want to be a Trojan and just because they give you a scholarship doesn't make you one of them in terms of getting on the field. Right. So you find a lot of talented players that get stuck behind a guy or behind another guy, and they never pan out. So they don't want the teams to stack their talent base, but really at the end of the day, you can't stop a team from recruiting players and kids wanting to go there. All right, here is, um, here's Red. Red, you're on the run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie B. Uh, yeah. There's a safety. He's like a perennial pro bowler for the Chiefs. His name is Eric Berry. He's got a, like a stud. His little brother committed to the University of uh, Tennessee at age 14. I think he's coming up soon, like, because that was a couple years ago. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a young outside linebacker out of Queens named Chris Stanley. Fucking tackling everything. <laughs> no, I... 
I don't think Chris is going to make it. I don't think that's going to happen for him. All right, are you uh, familiar with some of these kids? Who are some of the ones that you've got up on your list? Well, we have up uh, the, like I said, the most recent one was Bart Davius Hammies from Georgia. He was offered last month. Mm-hmm. Cody Riley from University of Arizona, one of the premier recruiting uh, destinations in all of college basketball. Dylan Moses, he's made a lot of headway because he was offered by both LSU and Alabama. He's 14 years old. So These are insane, though. Insane, they? exactly. Yeah. Especially in football, where you could tear your ACL tomorrow. Right. It could be done. Yeah, I think that you have a better idea knowing who a basketball player is going to be like. Most of the time, here's the weird thing, Nike follows most of these kids at a very, very early age. They'll know who, who the best 11- and 12-year-old players are. Uh, Kareem, everybody knew by the time he was in sixth grade that he was going to be a pro. The thing that most surprises me in Kentucky football offered Jarius Brents. He's a 13-year-old defensive back. Now, what if Jarius stops growing? Well, uh, he won't be able to be a defensive back. Yeah, and you really don't know the speed at 13. I don't know whether you remember when you were a kid and you play uh, football, but a lot of the guys that were great, it's because they could control their body because they were only going to grow to be about 5'4". The shortstop for my um, Little League team was terrific, but never grew. Again, he just stayed little, and that's why he had such great uh, coordination. A lot of times, it's some big, lunky 12-year-old who weighs about 210 and will finally start to grow into it a little bit. That becomes a great athlete. Clint, Lyndon Snow, or Lindell Snow, he's the 14-year-old that UCLA offered her scholarship to. Yeah. He's 14, he's six foot two and 190 pounds. And there, I'm sure they're betting he turns into Ben Roethlisberger, right? right. Six six two sixty. But he looks five you, years old. Exactly. Right? Do you remember when uh, LeBron was in high school and they used to put his games yeah. on ESPN? And you're like, um, I mean, the whole country was waiting for him, and the whole country basically was yelling at him, "Do not waste your time in college." Jumped right away. Now you got to do one year in college. Is that the deal? That's the deal. Yeah, one year in college. I don't know whether you saw the article on Johnny Football. Uh, yesterday, but he said he can't take being in that little town because he can't go anywhere. He's feeling the pressure of being super famous in a small town and starting to freak him out a little bit. I have very little sympathy for Johnny Manziel in the sense that he's the one that often goes to these big sporting events and sits on the sidelines. He's the one that tweeted out or Instagrammed out a picture of him in the casino with all the money that he won. He brings a lot of this upon himself. And does he think it's going to get any easier? When he's the first pick in the draft in two years or a year, does he think this is going to get any easier? But you you have to think, at 19 or 20, whatever he is now, he is not, uh, the maturity hasn't caught up with him. So it isn't, it isn't an easy thing. To, uh, just like it's not on children's stars right. when they're just kids. It's not easy to hold up. Um, here's uh, John, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hello? Yeah, what's up, buddy? Oh, I didn't know you got it. It's Johnny from New York City. I got, uh, hey, Johnny. My, nephew got dra- my nephew got drafted uh, by a big-name baseball school, I'll leave on name. And uh, he got drafted young, out of high school. They took him in. They never gave a full boat scholarship for baseball ever in the history of the school. He gets it. He blows out his arm the first year because they overworked him. Boom, gone. See you later. They, they do this for window dressing only. It's like they like buying options on, on athletes, these, these colleges. I don't see what's in it for the kid. 
I don't see why the okay. kid should commit to anybody. I don't think there's any reason for the kid to commit. In baseball, if you're a great player, I think you should do what Rick Porcello did. And then he was a pitcher, pitcher at Seton Hall Prep. He was uh, in the finalist for the Gatorade Athlete of the Year in high school. He signed with Scott Boris and was a first-round pick for the Detroit Tigers. Now, he hasn't been dominant, mm-hmm. but he got that money off the bat, as opposed to going to college like this young man's or this guy's uh, broad nephew or cousin or son. He blew his arm out. Right. Uh, Chris, you're on the Run of Fez show. Yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the uh, the kids that are committing really early. The thing, the, the difference is, a lot of these kids are committing early, but they're just verbal commitments. They're not contracts. So, so what's happening is um, they're committing at that young age. A lot of things can happen between the time they make the verbal commitment and the time they can actually sign the national letter of intent, which is, I believe is uh, late in their junior year of high school. So the coach leaves. Uh, the kid changes his mind. A lot of those things can. A kid get injured, gets injured. They're not under any obligation to take the kid. I think there's a, there's a lot of pressure for these kids to verbal up to these teams so that they have a slot for them. But a million things can happen between the time that they actually commit and the time they actually sign a legal document requiring them to stay with that school. Um. Yeah, and the weird thing is, you could not buy a car when you're that age when you're a kid. Can they really force these kids into any of these? Even a senior in high school, should we really make him, you know, has anyone ever said legally he can't really decide himself? He's only 17 years old. Well, they haven't said it whether like the strictly legality of it. But when you sign officially a sign, a sign with the team, mm-hmm. you are kind of locked in unless the team lets you out. Now, a lot of the coaches, depending on circumstances, they'll let you leave. And you can petition the NCAA for a special waiver. A couple years ago, Elliot Williams, he was a player at Duke. His mm-hmm. mom became ill. He asked Coach Krzyzewski to get out of the scholarship, and Coach K let him go. The NCAA didn't hold it against him. He played at Memphis to be closer to his family. But you need a reason to do that, or you need a coach to let you get out. Because the coach has spent a year or more in terms of resources to recruit you. It's such a weird thing. I mean, now that the coaches are making $5 million a year and some kid is making nothing, and as you said, uh, if he blows out his knee, he doesn't even get an education. The NCAA is going to screw themselves out of this whole thing. They're going to be gone. College football isn't going to change immensely. The the biggest issue with that, and I took a class about the NCAA when I was at school, is due to Title IX, a lot of these programs end up getting cut because there's no money in them, mm-hmm. which, which is unfair because you know the the girls' softball, let's say, or gymnastics or swimming or whatever, shouldn't get cut to make money for the other sports or make more money for the school. And it's difficult because you have all these different athletes from all these different sports, and they get kind of log jammed in this situation. It's it's ugly for the NCAA. The whole thing is insane. We've just gone batshit crazy, insane. In this country, you know, sports was better before it was a really big business. Um, then it was just sports. Now it's just a, a giant business. All right, Chris wants to disagree with you. Go ahead, Chris. Hey, Ron. Um, yeah, if, if, a, if a legitimate college offers a kid a scholarship, let's say as a sophomore, and he blows his knee out, and the kid's already accepted the college, they're never going to rescind that scholarship. It just doesn't work that way. No school would be respected enough down the road. So just the guy that you're talking to mentions that uh, 
they would pull the scholarship. That's not the case. No respectful school would ever do that. If they offer a 12-year-old kid a scholarship and he just doesn't grow into it, because let's face it, a lot of this has not to do with skill and has to just do with body and size, you're telling me they're going to send this kid to the school. If if he he verbally commits to school and is put in the newspaper and they both agree to it, you know, that's an extreme example, Ron. You know, you're talking about one in in 10,000 kids. But for the most part, if a kid's a junior or sophomore in high school, which is normally an early offer, they're never going to rescind that scholarship. Clemson University had one uh, not recently, and uh, the kid had some very bad head trauma. Could never play the game again, and uh, they honored a scholarship. And he said, "And that just means that that cost them a player, and they're going to give up a player for four years." That's right, and that's an anomaly. I mean, it happens. You know, Mm -hmm. does it happen all the time? No, but you know, no no good quality school could put their name on the line. Ask somebody to commit and rescind the kid's scholarship. It just I want to happen. see one of these kids become transgender by the time uh, he's 18. That would be my favorite thing that ever happened. Uh, well, then eight- says, you know, then says the stuff in a little coaching. Yeah. All right. Thanks, yeah. dude. Um, here is uh, Brian. Brian, you're on the Run of Fez show. Scholarships are only valid from year to year. Most universities honor them for the, f- the full four years. If a coach is not happy with you, he can release you from your scholarship. John Calipari did it uh, four years ago at Kentucky. They weren't; they were subpar players for that program. He needed his players. He just said, "You know, we're taking your scholarships away." Wow, I had no idea that they could do that. It seems like it's not fair. Nick Saban gets for at least two or three players a couple weeks ago for that exact reason that he wasn't going to play them. They weren't going to have any playing time and have any value for him. Well, that's what we're teaching the kids, isn't it? Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Here's John in Brooklyn. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, hey boys. How you doing? Good Here, here's my thought, and this happens all the time in the Ivy League, which doesn't give out athletic scholarships. So if my kid is in Podunk and he's a prodigy and the school at USC wants to offer him a scholarship, I would mandate that it be an a- academic scholarship. Not an athletic scholarship. I, I would assume that the other schools would fight that. If suddenly you had some terrific quarterback who had a B average and they offered him a scholastic scholarship, I think the other schools would be on that in a fucking heartbeat. I don't well, see that that's possible. I, I don't, I don't uh, deny your point in terms of uh, political pushback. But this is what the uh, Ivy League schools do because they don't give out athletic scholarships. Uh, and you're saying that they take some kids there just because they're jocks and then offer them a scholastic scholarship? I would say it's a small, small percentage, but I guarantee there's a number of guys on, uh, you know, Cornell football, let's say, or. Uh, Princeton lacrosse, who are hell of a good players. I know Columbia is here uptown, and you could go to those games and lay down. So they they just don't focus on sports in the Ivy League. Uh, They are too interested in the fact that they're the Ivy League. It doesn't doesn't make them feel any better if uh, Princeton beats Columbia. They don't give a shit. It's different in the Ivy League. It's an entirely different culture. The focus in the Ivy League truly is upon academics. That's yeah. what it's all about. If you really want to see student-athletes, uh, there's a great documentary on the Army-Navy game. And these guys, the 
academics are intense. Then, after that, they're out in the field shooting, jumping out of helicopters. And when all that's done, they have football practice. These guys are exhausted. They're up 5 o'clock in the morning, but they're playing football only because they think of it as fun. Not at all to do with... And they only care about one game a year. They wouldn't give a shit if they only played against each other. Um, here is uh, Tom in Florida. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. I live down in Tallahassee. I follow Florida State sports, mainly football, quite a bit. Um, what you were saying earlier was that he was a kid, blows his knee out or has some sort of injury where he can no longer participate in football, let's say. The school will keep him on scholarship. He can attend that school and graduate as far as long as he wants to go. And then, I don't and this know is which school, FSU? Yeah, and I don't know about other schools, but Florida State will also, if you leave early, let's say, at your junior year and you haven't completed your degree, and say you after three or four years or whatever, you wash out of the NFL, they'll allow you to come back and continue to get your degree. I don't know if that's fully paid for, but I know the majority of it. Let me ask you this. Do the kids on the football team get to stay as drunk as the other kids at FSU? Of course they can. Yeah, okay. They just hit down to Pop Bellies and get all the girls down there at the local bar right down there. And they, all right. Yeah, that's the, that's the important thing about that school. Um, right. We are proud of our parking. All right, thanks. But to be fair, the colleges can't cut you from your scholarship if you get hurt when you're there. But if you are a 12-year-old kid before you even get there, it's an entirely different situation. All right, so if you're a sophomore and you blow out your knee, they have to honor the next couple of years. When you're in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to make an then, attempt to come back. You have but to how, how come Nick Saban could trash kids just for stinking? Because he doesn't. there's nothing wrong with them in terms of... Right, it's like a dis- it's like workman's comp or disability. Uh, it seems now that seems even more insane. I think if you really start to act like you stink, then act like your elbow went out. Who's going to know? Eight six six run zero fez. Eight six six run zero fez. Here's uh, let me go over here on line six. Max, we got to take our thumb off him. There we go. Uh, Max, what do you got? Hey, Ronnie. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Smith. Um, I came over on a Division One scholarship. I ended up going to a, a school in Rhode Island, but uh, I was recruited by Harvard and everything, and they uh, they basically offered me a scholastic scholarship to come there because they don't do those scholarship things. But, I mean, it's essentially the same deal. I had no idea that. Now, what do you do that impressed them? Um, I was a track runner. I was a sub-former a miler in high school, so I came over and ran track. But the whole system, and dude, I got a lot of problems with the NCA. But what uh, you know, you guys are talking about with Saban, like it, those players, if they're good enough to go play at Bama, they're good enough to go play somewhere else. So releasing them is probably doing them a favor to go play at a different school. Well, who was the kid that got released from last year? It was like something bear, honey bear, something. Oh, the honey badger, Tyron Matthew. All right, there you go. Yeah. He was suspended and released from a scholarship for a failing drug test. And he was a, a, a star in that position, and they just replaced him basically with another star in that position. I mean, they know in the SEC how to go and get these kids, and there's no one kid that makes a program anymore. It's amazing. As great as Tyron Matthew was, and he finished fifth in the Heisman Trophy the year before, he was an electric punt and kick returner. And they said, you're gone. Thanks for playing. And LSU's defense was just as good. You're right. It's well, a lot of that has to do with geographic location. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the top football players come from the South. 
Right. Which is right where LSU and Alabama are. And the second part is success breeds future success. If you have a couple good seasons, then you recruit better players, then it's a circle. So there's only a couple places that most of these high school kids come out. You got the Ohio, Western Pennsylvania region where football's king, Texas, and then the Alabama, Georgia, North Florida quarter, right? And then California. A lot of these skill oh, yeah, positions. California. Their high schools are so crazy. It's unbelievable. About the sports there, no matter what the sport is. No matter what the sport is, they're insane with it. Um, so your best bet is to have a university somewhere in the middle of all that. And their parents to have went there. Um, here is Ryan. Ryan, you're on the Run of Fest show. I just wanted to say, don't you think that the sports in general... Um, is just bullshit. Like, as far as building character and building, you know, teamwork and self-esteem and confidence and all these lies that are fed to us as we're growing up that, oh, you got to be in organized athletics because, you know, it does all this good stuff for you. It's bullshit. I, I played sports growing up. Most of us did. It's, it's, it, you know, it's about competition. You know, you win, you're great. You lose, you feel terrible. Uh, I just I, I think this whole idea that sports is healthy is is a big fat lie. I just think it's a I think it's bullshit. Well, I think a lot of it just depends on like yeah, like everything else in life. It's the guy right above you. So you could work for the best company in the world, but if your boss is a red ass and just a jerk off, then your life there is going to just be a nightmare. If you happen to work for a great guy, it could be. So there are terrific youth coaches out there who really give people lifelong memories. And then there's coaches that give kids lifelong nightmares. It's just who you happen to get. I think sports are great because it gives people an avenue to focus on other things. There's a lot of kids in the world that if they didn't have sports, they'd be doing other things. They'd be doing things as bad as drugs as you know silly as like shoplifting let's say they would you know be playing video games instead of getting out there there's a lot of things there's a lot of value to two sports you would say that but then the amount of people that we have in the nfl who end up in trouble as soon as it's over uh, a lot of that league is just prolonging some of that stuff so yeah some of what you are saying is absolutely true but at the same time it can cause just as many problems. Another thing, if you look at the focus this this country has on sports, we've gotten out of control with it. Uh, I bring up this stuff from of what is happening in, in South Chicago. If the people in this country paid the same amount of attention on those kids as, as we do our sports team, the country would be better off. We would be much better off if people could get behind certain things with the same excitement as they get behind sports. In a perfect world, that would be nice. But people tend to follow things that interest them. Well, that's what I'm saying. No, I, I we are out of position. If we had that many people interested in child pornography, it would not make it a good thing. You know, I agree. But there are so many things that need to be fixed in this country that if we felt the same way we felt about them as we do the Miami Heat, if we put people in Liberty City to say, look, 
we care about you just as much as you we care about LeBron, the country would be a better place. I don't think you could just say sports good. I think they do a lot more uh, bad um, than they do uh, good. And that's just because we're out of balance with it. Corey, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Cool. Uh, no, I'm going to get called a racist for this question, Ron, but I just want to get... That'll never on. happen here. I, you have my guarantee. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, but uh, anyways, you were talking about the great recruiting pool of the South, <clears throat> and maybe I don't need to ask this question because I already know the answer to it, but again, I just want to get your opinion. How much do you think that is uh, modern-day training, and how much of it do you think is uh, historical genetics left over from breeding of the slave days? You redneck racists. You disgust me. You're a fucking modern-day slave trader. Uh, you know, the whole thing about genetics, uh, it's still being worked out. But just like I told the uh, one of the interns that you're better being rich, you're better being rich than not being rich, the same thing is, is true of having good genes. But if all black people were great at sports, Obama wouldn't throw a baseball the way that he does. He he can shoot a basketball because he focused on it. Doesn't mean that you're going to be good at every sport. A lot of that has to do with the way the country is changing in terms of population. Much more people lived in the Rust Belt areas of the country 30, 40, 50 years ago than now. So a lot of those... But it's also emphasis of that community. People in Texas love the sport of football. I don't know whether you've seen some of those high school stadiums down there. They're crazy. But I don't understand how a town that has 9,000 people could have a 15,000-seat stadium with giant video screen. But it happens. It's true. Uh, people have sent me their hometown shit, and it's it's mind blowing. So when you know when you are raised in something, naturally people are going to get better at it. They focus on it. Um, here's uh, here's Mike, North Carolina. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey Ron, good question. I just got in the car, moving it from side of the campus to the other. I'm at my son's orientation. He's a scholarship athlete where he's going to, and he plays baseball. Baseball has 11.7 scholarships for 30 players, and it's broken down by percentages. And I had asked the coach, I said, the percentage that my son is getting, does that guarantee for four years? And I was told he can't guarantee it for four years, but he said, well, if my son ever wins conference player of the year, don't be coming looking for more money because he's not going to take his money from him. 866-RUN-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RUN-ZERO-FEZ. Here's Eric. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, going back a couple minutes uh, to what you were talking about, Ron, with um, the interesting thing, and I've heard you say it before, about how these coaches and these universities are making such an unbelievable amount of money, and these players aren't compensated in the, in the slightest. Um, in America, you don't often get people jumping with you uh, for the soccer bandwagon, but there is some interesting things that they do in European uh, and primarily English soccer, as I understand it. Kids are offered um, contracts at a very young age. Um, let me back up to say that teams like Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur, Liverpool, these teams, they have teams at every given level. Manchester United has an under-12 team, have an under-14 team all the way up to their what they call their first team. And they pay they pay these kids to play and they pay them to keep them in their youth system and they hope that they will develop them into someone who can play in their first team. Now 
just like we're talking about pulling these scholarships back, this is business for these kids and their families. Mm-hmm. If the kid if the kid doesn't pan out and doesn't progress in the way that the the team thought they would, they pull the contract and they say, "Well, thanks for playing. You know, you've got your money." And and in some cases, I would imagine uh, these kids aren't left entirely in the lurch. They've got money to go to college, or their family's been living off of this income for a while. Yeah, it seems like that's a fair way. Here's the interesting thing, too. It doesn't mean that their universities don't have soccer teams. They do. They're just played by guys who want to play soccer while they go to university. That's a really big difference than what we do in this country with our football program. I I think that our, our football programs have poisoned our colleges. We basically make football more important than anything else in most of these colleges. It's interesting you say that. I mean, I went to a big school. I went to Arizona State in the Pac-12, which is, you know, Pac-12 mm-hmm. is big, or Pac-12 now. It's a big-time football conference. But in, as much as people care, you know, there's, you know, 100 other student-athletes that that's their main focus. It, football is kind of different. It's like a whole unique a cultural thing in the right. country. And that brings back alumni and money and right. blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, what is sicker than alumni? What is sicker than these adults coming back to the college to party at age 30, 40, 50, 60? These people are insane and demand winning teams. God, that's nuts. Uh, Mike in Boston, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hey, um, um, I went to the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy, played football there, wrestled there and stuff. Beautiful. And I can attest to you that it was just, it was, it was a thankless job. First of all, we had to, we had to play a couple of sports. It was, it was mandatory. But, you know, it was only Division Three. but we were exhausted all the time. We couldn't, you know, like, we would have games. That's what they want to do to you guys, though. They want to keep you exhausted. Ah, we would have games like during an actual football game. We would have people sitting on the bench, falling asleep because they're so exhausted. It it was it was thankless, but you know, but we did it because we wanted to do it. You got to play in the yeah. little Army Navy game, and that had to be a thrill. <laughs> well, we played in the uh, Coast Guard Merchant Marine game. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what they would call the little Army Navy game. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, man, it, it, you know, it was you know. I loved it because I was able to football and wrestle just for the love of it. And there was nothing else beside it. Well, great education, but. Uh, all right, my friend. Thank you. Take care. All right, Ron. Peace. Um, here's Mike. You're on the Run of Fez show. Mike, we got you, buddy? Lost you. Let me go over here to Matt. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. Hey, I, I came in on this. I just finished up with work, and I, I listen to you guys all the time in the afternoon. But I uh, I lived down in Tampa uh, for about six years. They just moved back to Rhode Island, originally from New England. And I used to drive through Lakeland, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the area, but there was a brand-new football stadium for this high school, brand-new corporate sponsors all over the field, brand-new Jumbotron. Now, there's high school football. 14,000 people, they'd sell this thing out eight Fridays a year. They used to have 12, 13 games in the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. You would literally walk 250 feet from the front of this brand-new football stadium, and it would be some of the and, – and, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, and I lived all over the country – some of the worst, like, slums people living in, shacks, 
But boy, they got that brand new football stadium, and you know they're kicking them kids out of that football program in the college, and it's big time business out there. But you know, I, I listened to the caller, you know, and you, he said, you know, what about genetics and whatnot? Yeah. So I went to one of these games one time, right? Now again, I'm from New England, you know, and I didn't really understand the big time football thing until I went down to Central Florida. But they get crazy down there. There's 30, 30 kids on on one team. And I'm not lying when I say this. And it's probably, you know, the community was probably 70, 30, you know, African-American population. There was maybe two white guys on the team. Literally two white guys on the team. But you walk 250 feet from the stadium, there's gunshots. I mean, I used to hear gunshots like it was nothing. Yeah. You know, and it just goes to show you, like, the, I don't know, I don't know if transparency, but, you know, like, the, the opposite side of the spectrum, you know. And it's even at the high school level in the pop world, it's business. It's it's big business. Well, uh, it goes back to what I was talking to Bob about. I wonder sometimes if sports gives us a false sense of community pride. Instead of actual community pride, maybe we have this false sense because, oh, we some kid came from our hometown who made the big league, and that covers up for the fact that there's also crack addicts in that town and kids that are living without a father. And maybe sports, uh, and I'm saying this as somebody who watches sports all the time, Maybe the sports is completely out of bounds for us. That might be a case by case basis in the sense in the sense of where are you? If you're in a suburb somewhere, the mm-hmm. football team's going to most likely going to bring your community together. If you're an inner city that has bigger problems, they should be focusing on the other problems. But even if you're bringing your city together, your community together, why is that a positive thing to have that about that? As opposed to academics, why is that uh, a positive thing to have those kids working on that, as opposed to doing charity work? You know, the fact that okay, we're a blessed community. Maybe there should be a different way to to get back, and maybe the community would even feel better about themselves. Uh, pro sports are really strange, where New York will feel good about a bunch of people who are really Dominicans uh, playing in Yankee Stadium. And people in New York will be jumping up and down. Oh, we're so great. New York always has the best baseball team. How many of those people are actually from New York? What the hell are you cheering for? You were just saying some businessman who lived in our community could pay more money, which has happened with the Yankees, than other places. It's really about the jersey when you're a professional. And when you're a college player or a college team, it's really about you know the alma mater of your school. But without that city name. If you don't call them the Washington Redskins, right, would the people care that much? If they just happen to be called the Redskins or the IBM Redskins, you know, they use that sense of community. Every single pro team uses that sense of community. Here's the interesting thing about LeBron playing in Miami. He actually left his community that he grew up in, lived in his whole life to play somewhere else, and now that community hates him. It is interesting. <laughs> they despise him. Um, here is Josh. Josh, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie. Um, I guess I just wanted some clarification on your point that you find it crazy. Um, alumni go back to, you know, you know, 30, 40 year old alumni go back to college, through their college. I guess my question is, you know, I mean, you're a fit, you, you grew up out of 
outside of Philly. So what's the difference between you being having that connection with the Phillies? I think the difference is the school. I, I think I think for that team. I think the difference is, is that these are minors. These are under twenty one. And it's really strange when people yell that a non-professional sucks or pull him out of the game. It's really strange for adults to uh, think that a 19-year-old boy is responsible for their happiness or anger or sadness. It's really fucking nuts. Oh, fair enough. I mean, I agree with you on that point. I guess, okay, I just want a clarification, because I thought maybe... You were, I just, I just you think that college, like I think that college that. should be for the kids, quite honestly. I really think that if you go to Ohio State, it makes a lot more sense for that to be the kids that are there now. Not, if you look at the 50-yard line, it's alumni sitting there who went there in the 70s and 80s. It's weird. I took a trick about the Eugene, Oregon, mm-hmm. for a Duck Arizona State game. That was the same thing. The entire like state seemed to be at the where at the University of Oregon. It's people have been there for fifty years. All right, it's nuts. All right, we got a break again. Um, for some reason, over on the Interbank today, some people seem to be interested in this Sophia. Vieira shares her ass with Instagram picture. I don't get it. I don't understand it. So it's a girl with an incredibly fantastic ass laying next to her pool. What is her background? Is she Mexican? Does anybody know? She is South American. I believe Colombian or Venezuelan. She's phenomenal. And this Instagram really uh, helps everybody out in a, a very, very big way. huh? It gives these people a sense of pride and and their pull sideness. She is phenomenal. There's no doubt about yeah. that. She's worth killing for. <laughs> Alright, we break. We'll be back with uh, an old buddy of mine who's made good with his life. Max Borges will be here. If you are interested in entrepreneurship, um, Max has been on it for uh, a long, long time. I've known him for probably over 20 years. And uh, we're going to go through his story and how he's created this really amazing, cool company in Miami Beach. We'll be right back. It's the Ron Fed Show. Ron Bennington. Right. All right. Tez Wally. Yeah. This is the, the Ron and Fez Show. There's been so many times when you're away from the house, away from your television set, and yet there is something that you wanted to see on television. You're trapped. You're stuck without your show, your sports event, whatever's going on. It doesn't have to be that way, people. Not with the Hopper from Dish Network. Dish Network, they have the Hopper, the number one DVR system in the world. It does stuff that no other DVR system does, especially not those cable people. But... What the DVR does do, the hopper, it lets you watch television wherever and whenever you want to because you can watch it on your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, wherever you go and you've got your device. It's linked with the hopper. That way you program your hopper for what you want to watch, live events, live television, or pre-programmed stuff that you can watch later. And you have your TV with you no matter where you're at, 
whether it's with your smartphone, laptop, or tablet. It's the Hopper from Dish Network. Call them today to find out how you can be part of this modern-day miracle. It's 1-800-WATCH-TV. 1-800-WATCH-TV. Watch all your live and recorded television wherever and anywhere you want to. Turn any room into a TV room. Here's that number again. 1-800-WATCH-TV. 1-800-WATCH-TV. Get the hopper from DISH. This is the Ron and Fez Show. On the Opie and Anthony channel. Got that? You got a phone. Oh, you're all alone. It's the Ron and Fez Show. The artist of the day is the old Oki. Damn, he's great. It's so amazing uh, just how much phenomenal music is out there. The great Leon Russell is today's artist of the day. All right, we're going to bring in an old pal of mine who... Uh, Started a business that has done very, very well uh, for him and for a lot of other people. It's the Max Borges Agency, and it is a 
a tech PR and social media group. Uh, Max, welcome to the show. How you doing, my friend? Thanks, Rod. It's so good to see you after all these years. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> And uh, to see that you've, uh, there's very few people, I think, that I've ever met in my life who've focused on something, went after something, and achieved it. First of all, just tell people exactly what your agency does. Well, my uh, it's a public relations agency that specializes in consumer electronics companies. So we, mm -hmm. we, we represent consumer electronics and tech company so if you see a cool gadget on um, a website or in a newspaper on Good Morning America there's a high likelihood that somebody that works for me called up the that particular media outlet and got that product placed on that show and these and everybody wants to do that everybody wants to have their thing on one of the big TV shows and a big uh, magazine so oh yeah people do need your business yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot of guys now you know it's it's uh, you know uh, starting or or developing your own consumer electronics product is kind of like making a record in the old days mm -hmm. you know you can you can get um, you know a, a sourcing company to make it out of china it doesn't cost a lot of money so you know it's not as hard to make a product so a lot of people are making these products um, they're not big companies necessarily and they don't have millions and millions of dollars to spend uh, on a national marketing budget but they can hire an agency like ours to get them uh, editorial coverage in various different uh, national magazines and TV shows and things like that and so it's it's a great way for them to to publicize their product and make it famous now so many of these people come and some of the products are very famous like a record for a little period of time and then go away do you sit down and and look at this like is this going to be a hit or well we do but just like the music business it's really really hard to mm -hmm. to predict i mean we have companies that'll come in and i'll think to myself these guys are not going to last two months it's it's a it's a guy working out of his house mm -hmm. he's got a little product he's selling it on his website and, and there's just no way he's going to be able to afford to 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 build up this business and three four years later you know, he's still, his check is still cashing, and he's done it. And then we get these big companies that come in, you know, with all these, uh, you know, Harvard grads, and, and they've got their shit together, and they really know what they're doing. And you think, all right, this is a big coup for us that we landed this company. And six months later, you know, that division's closing down because they don't know what the hell they're doing. So there's really no way to predict. It's It's been almost impossible for us to predict. The beauty of it is it is... Uh, about the market, though. You know what I mean? The market will decide whether something works or not. Oh, absolutely. Well, particularly when it comes to, is this new thing cool? There, the, one thing I'll say is that there's not a lot of um, products that we've represented that I thought, wow, this product should have made it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of old bands I thought should have made it. Right. <laughs> but with the product, the ones that should have made it, made it. Well, that's uh, how I met you. You were a promoter. And basically years ago, and I mean this in the best possible way, because I think more people should do it, a street guy. A guy who would go out to the clubs, come up with something cool to do, and then try their best to get people to come in. And the education to that, uh, I think, is phenomenal for young uh, people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um 
I started doing events and clubs, and you know, I met you at the at the radio station. Mm-hmm. I was uh, trying to get uh, folks at the station to support my event, and I remember I handed you a flyer for the for the Tampa Bay Music Awards, and you asked me if uh, if that was an event I was putting on, and you invited me to come on your show, and you uh, you allowed, you started promoting promoting my events for me, and and really helped me out a lot. So. so how is that different from what you're doing now, though? Did that prepare you for oh, what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, you, you, learn, uh, you learn how to be resourceful, right? Mm-hmm. You learn how to just figure it out. And, um, you know, not having gone to college, uh, you know, I learned from my dad how to be an entrepreneur, which basically just meant that, you know, you just, if you want to do something, you just do it, you yeah. know, and you figure it out. You jump in the pool and you just start paddling and eventually, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get your head above water. And, and there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of lessons. There were a lot of failures, you know, but now I can look back at them and look at everything that, that failed and say, this is something I needed to learn mm-hmm. to get me where I am today. But you were also a guy who was really... Uh, focused on success stuff. I mean, you were a young guy in the clubs, metal bands, all kinds of shit, but during the daytime you would be reading business books and success books. You were into it. Oh, absolutely, and and we always talked a lot about that, and I was... Whatever I was doing, I was 100% sure that that thing was going to make me rich. Yeah. There was no doubt in my mind until it failed, and then I was crushed. And then a few days later, I'd come up with something else that I was 100% sure was going to make me rich. And, uh, you know, you go through that enough times, and as long as you don't give up, eventually yeah. <laughs> one of those things actually does work. And it's hard thing to teach young people, though. But if you want to be a surfer, you do got to paddle out there and wait for waves. So you know what I mean? Yeah. The waves have got to come, you yeah, know. I, I, absolutely. And so I, I you know the surfing analogy is a good one because you know you you've got to be a good surfer but you also have to catch a good wave and you need to have a little bit right. of luck that that intersects with a bit of of skill and uh you know eventually if you just keep trying uh, it will it will happen. When did it start and happen for you because uh, this well, when I knew you, not only could you have not gotten into this business, but this business didn't even exist. We're not talking that long ago for the fact that you were sitting around, you know, as you were trying to plan your life's uh, dreams. This business itself did not exist. So, what happened? How did you get to that point? Well, I, I mean, there were there were a lot of. Uh, it was a long path. It mm-hmm. took me hours to tell you all. But I mean, to get to, when I got to this, you know, I had really was just kind of at my wits end. You know, I had been fired from jobs that I had. Everything I had done up to that point had failed. I was 34 years old. I had gotten divorced. My mother had died. I was depressed, and uh, and at that point, I decided it'd be a good idea just to put all my stuff in storage and take a trip around the world. So I packed up a bag and uh, I flew to London and I traveled throughout Europe and then I went to Thailand and, and hung out there with, uh, with the ladies. That was fun. And then uh, I went to New Zealand and Australia and, and, and on the way back I realized that what I really had to do, the, my life's calling was to start a, a band management company, managing bands, which is mm-hmm. you know kind of what I'd done in the beginning, but I thought, okay, I'm older now, and, uh, and I'd had some more experience, and I thought that was the thing I'm going to do. So I came back to Miami, and uh, with some people that I knew, um, 
you know, started to get it going, but it just never got going. So, you know, here I am. Now I'm thinking I'm a total failure. I'm renting a, a room from this girl that I knew for $400 a month, and mm-hmm. I had all my stuff still in storage because I'd moved out of my apartment. I mean, I was about as close to homeless as I'd ever been. And um, and I was looking for a job, and I sent out a resume, and I couldn't get a job, but I did get a client. I got a company that hired me to do some marketing consulting work. And uh, and it paid pretty good, and I was working out of my apartment. And, uh, and then I started looking for another client. And I got another client, and then I looked for another client, and then I got a little uh, a little office, three hundred square foot office. It cost me five hundred bucks a month, and and I hired a guy to help me out, and then I kept adding clients and basically doing any marketing work that anybody would pay me to do for about four years, and then I, I analyzed everything we were doing, and we were doing consumer electronics PR, we were doing. Uh, Ban- national band search competitions. We were doing basically anything that I get paid for. So I, I analyzed everything we were doing. What I realized was all the clients that we were doing consumer electronics PR for were happy. And and we were having a good time working with them, and they were making us money. So that's when I realized, and I was reading Good to Great, I was reading Jack mm. Welch, I was reading all these books that said, figure right. out what you can be the best at. And and I thought, you know, I think if we just focus on consumer electronics PR, we can be the best at that. And at the time, no other agency... Nobody had the, ever done that. Nobody before. had ever focused that much. You know, they did consumer electronics, but they also did tech, they did banking, they did healthcare, they did everything. So we focused only on consumer electronics. And uh, and the business just started blowing up. We grew 74% that year, and, and you know I think that year we did almost a million dollars in business. That was uh, seven years ago. This year we'll do 10 million. So here you go, within, we're talking like a 10-year span of totally broke, to doing ten million dollars a year in business in a economy that everyone just told us was the worst economy that people had seen in the nineteen thirties, and you just disregard all that stuff, Max, because your 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 business not only growing, but how many employees do you have now? For, Forty-seven employees mm-hmm. and about eight positions I need to fill. <laughs> really? So yeah, it's you, it's. Yeah, it's crazy. We're we're growing faster than than we even can handle. And also, I see that you are one of those businesses that wins those awards for best places to work, greatest jobs to have. So that's something that you had to focus on yourself as a manager. You wanted to make the really cool, fun place to work. Well, it's a it's a cool, fun place to work, but it was really um, it's also about. You know, hiring the right people, creating the right atmosphere, you know, hiring for culture and, and, and ability first, and then, you know, they can learn, you know, all of the, the skills. But, you know, one of the points that you're making about, uh, you know, making it through a tough economy, you know, when you think about the economy and, and you listen to the news, you know, they're, they're always talking about averages, you know, and, and I hate averages mm-hmm. because whenever somebody talks to me about, uh, you know, the average amount of money somebody makes in a particular position or the amount of jobs that a particular city has, you know, that's, that's irrelevant because unless, unless you're thinking in terms of a large group of people, but I'm just thinking about me. Mm-hmm. So I, I just need to find the one exception to the rule and then I can be successful. And that's what people need to think about. They need to stop thinking about, you know, what, what's the average amount of money I'm going to make if I get, get my MBA and say, how much money can I make? What can I do? How can I be the exception to the rule? How can I be 
spectacularly successful and and not just kind of take this you know path that gets laid out for me by the media or by institutions or by whoever else decides you know how successful I should or shouldn't be so you're not looking over your shoulder in either direction you're just doing the max thing that you wanted to do doing what I think what I think I should be doing uh, your offices, I read this thing about you after you contacted me, uh, looks like Ari Gold's offices from Entourage. <laughs> is that true. right? Down yeah. on Miami Beach? Yeah, that's true. So you really want, I, this is what kills me, within this short period of time, you go from being broke to, hey, let's make the coolest offices on Miami Beach, let's invite, let's uh, bring cool people in here that want to join in that. That takes a certain amount of courage, not to just start to nickel and dime yourself. You know what I mean? You, you know what? It was um, it was more fear. You know when 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 things got going and I got that first client and the second and the third and you know all of a sudden you know I had never made more than sixty thousand dollars a year. Right. You know so suddenly you know I'm making a lot of money. And um, and and I knew that that my lucky break had finally come, and that I needed to stay very 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 focused. Um, you know, I'd also gotten remarried at that time, and now I have kids, and so I have all this extra responsibility that I thought, you know, I can't screw this up. And so it really kept my ego in check in a way that had never it I'd never had it in check prior to that. If this would have happened to you ten years before, you would have felt oh yeah, screwed I would have I would have yeah. screwed it up absolutely. So I was finally at it age and a maturity and I had the responsibility with my family that um, you know I, I, I couldn't screw it up you know I had to do the right things and so there was always this fear that it was all gonna end and I had to make sh and that even the littlest mistake could just end it all and so it was that kind of of and I was I was I was petrified. I mean, sure. I would I would wake up in the middle of the night, staring at the ceiling, going, "I can't believe my great fortune." And is it going to end tomorrow? Is yeah. tomorrow the day I walk into the office and something 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 happens that it's just all over? And so that really motivated me a lot, a whole lot. I love the fact that most people, if they think about guys who have built a business. They'll look at their house or their vacation house, but they don't really look at the real thing that this guy feels responsible 24 hours a day. And most people who work in their, in their jobs don't have to think about it that much. But you're not just thinking about your job. Once you have all these people working for you, you're thinking about their lives and make sure that they maintain their lives. There becomes this sense of responsibility that just goes on and on. Oh, it's huge. I had a girl walk into my office yesterday and she said, hey, I just wanted to let you know we, you know, we put a contract down on a house. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. I'm so happy that <laughs> I have employees that can afford to buy their own houses now. So yeah, there's a lot of responsibility and, and it's a responsibility to my family too, because uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Mm -hmm. You know, you're even though look, if you're a single guy and you lose it all, you start all over again. But your family doesn't want to hear that, right? So they they, they don't want to have a, a a drop in their standard of of living. So and you know, and I also I, I was fortunate that I had a father that you know really set a great example for me as an entrepreneur and as a guy that would just was a self starter and would get it done. And I thought the most important thing, my important most important responsibility, is to wake up every day and make sure that. I set a right example for my kids, mm -hmm. and so for me to fail in front of my children would be, you know, the worst 
you know, the worst failure of all. Your father was in the building business, right? He was a builder, yeah. He was, you know, he came over from Cuba when mm. he was in, a teenager and, um, and did not go to college, had no business being a builder. He worked at Sears selling paint, and then he worked for a realtor, and then one day... He and a partner bought some property, and he started building houses. To this day, I still don't know how he did it. He was 29 years old. But my dad was not smart enough to know that he was not qualified to become a developer as a Cuban Im immigrant at right. 29 years old. So he just did it anyway. And he built hundreds of homes. And, yeah. And, uh, and he's still around. <laughs> he, he got the chance to see all this happen for you, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the greatest part of that, because I remember when I was talking to you, you always... Uh, talked about your your father a lot and examples of that. So that that, that to me is fantastic. He got to see this happen for you. It's yeah, good for no. you and it's also good for him. No, it's great. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the American dream. Here he comes over here from Cuba, and his not only does he achieve something that didn't exist, but his son is able to achieve something. And think if he doesn't take that move. In the first place, to come over here. What are you doing now? Diving for quarters or something? <laughs> who knows? You know, yeah, who knows? Who knows how many breaks you get? Who, who knows? But yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, having you know, having that kind of example is is critical. But I think having a, a feeling like you have a responsibility to others is. Is, right. very, is very valuable as a motivator, more so than I ever thought. You know, I always thought getting rich was really the prime yeah. responsibility, but it, when, it, when it was, you know, being able to take care of other people, that's, right. that's what really made the big difference. And your personality doesn't get you really to sit next to a pool too much. I mean, if you sit for a while, you start to get a little antsy. It's the know? number, it's funny you mention it, it's the number one biggest uh, uh, problem I have in my marriage right now is that my wife likes to take vacations and I don't. So now what we do is she goes on the vacation with the kids, mm -hmm. I go a few days later, hang out for a few days, then I come home and then she's she comes back a few days later so sh i go like a third or a half of the vacation because <laughs> i can't I, I go crazy sitting at a at a resort doing nothing uh you were a, a guy that like when you contacted me you said hey this is my company now i'm like i'm not surprised <laughs> i know that might have bummed you out a little bit but i knew <laughs> that you were so focused as a uh, a young person that sooner or later something was going to break through for you yeah, I, I mean, I, I I never lost the passion for doing something, and I always felt like, you know, I I, I didn't want to I didn't be washing dishes one day. Yeah. you know, that just wasn't wasn't me, and uh, I had to accomplish something. So even though, you know, the, my music award shows that you helped right. me promote that I thought were going to be great, you know, fell, and then you know I'd started other businesses, recording church choirs. Yeah. Um, what else did I do? Uh, well, we had talked about once about doing that success radio network. Remember that? Which is some of the stuff that's happened on on this platform. You know, some of the stuff that we talked about back then did not even the technology didn't exist <laughs> right. at the time to pull it off. You know, you'd have to put it on an old a AM station. But I really do think being the type of person who can walk into a place 
and why I think it's great for people to be around bars and restaurants when they're young is that you can come up with an idea, you know, like, hey, what about a shooter's table? Hey, what if, uh, you know, there's a certain night where you do karaoke or guys dancing, whatever it happens to be. That is the quickest way to be in a business that lasts just for that one thing. You don't have to put a ton of money into it. And you can come in and promote that. But that's also the kind of thinking that literally corporate America could use more of. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because I, I my dad was the king of the yellow pad business plan. Right. And, and I remember as a teenager, you know, if he was going to build a house, you know, it would all fit on one page of a yellow pad. This was before there were even computers. So he would just write down, you know, an estimate of, of what all the expenses were going to be, what he thought he could sell this house for, and what the profit was going to be. Um, I remember, you know, he opened up a restaurant, did it the same way. He, uh, he promoted a concert once. Uh, and I remember him calling me up and going, hey, do you know where I can rent some violins? I'm like, violin? What do you need to rent violins? Oh, I'm going to promote this concert. It's an artist coming from Cuba, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but it was always, you know, one page. So, he, you know, he really ingrained in me that you don't have to complicate it too much. That you mm -hmm. can have your expenses, you're going to have your income, and you're going to have a profit. And, you know, you just have to make that simple math work and some people just get really lost in you know the complexity of a business and don't know how to how to break it down to those three things or in the fact when there is chaos uh, there's opportunity because I remember when your dad went down uh, after Andrew, right. when everybody was standing around in Miami, he was hiring roofers and contacting insurance companies saying, look, I've got roofers, tell me what you need, blah, 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 when a lot of people were just sitting around staring at each other, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, there was just never any you know question about can we do this um what do we need to know to do this do we have the education to do you know yeah. it was always just kind of do it and, and and figure it out and and yeah that's that's absolutely right and that's why i was saying that i'm always more comfortable around those kind of street guys you know it's the way that i came into uh this business was you know kind of pushing myself in sideways so i all but recognized you as a person in the tribe but if you remember those guys who were actually in the corporate side of the business they never got those kind of promotions they never understood how those kind of promotions would work right you right. know well you know look you, you and i used to talk about you know a lot of things and i remember you know back one day when i called you up and i said oh i, I just read this book by a guy named Anthony Robbins, mm. and you were like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I read that guy a year ago. You know, you were you were one step ahead of me. People probably don't know that you read those kinds of things and that you were into those kinds of things. But, but you know, you were always a great mentor to me, and always, um, always helped me think through all of the challenges I was having because I was twenty four years old, mm -hmm. you know, and trying to take on these responsibilities. And, and 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 try to accomplish these new things and you know you always ask me the right questions i remember yeah. talking on the phone and you'd always get me to think about things in in a different way and and you know that's helped me to this day well it's very funny you're like uh hey i just wanted to tell you that this thing came through for me i'm really doing great now i remember back in the day you i I, you lent me money, and I'm like, oh, fuck, I hope he never paid me back. That would be great. <laughs> I did. You lent me 1500 bucks, and I paid you back. God damn it. That would have been no. sweet. Uh, but I'm really, really proud of you. Let me ask you this, dude. If someone is 
got a new gadget. They've got new software. There's a new social media thing. How do they get this stuff off the ground? Because the, the weird thing about it is you are living, as we're sitting around talking about young dreamers, uh, and this is all the kind of people that you're dealing with now. You know, people who want to go from the garage and making something else. Oh, sense. yeah. Yeah, I deal I deal a lot with those people, and, and that's probably one of the most fun part of my jobs is that I get to, you know, peer into all of these different businesses and see all these different, um, you know, entrepreneurs that are that are launching products. You know, there's, there's so many different ways, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one real interesting story that that's kind of fun and it kind of speaks to, you know, when you got a good idea how well it could work. There's this guy named Ron. He's down in, in Miami, and... He worked in IT or computers or something, mm-hmm. and him and his dad were at the airport and uh, and and getting ready to check in their bags. And you know how it is when someone's got a bag that's overweight. You know they open up the bag and they're moving stuff, and it's just really annoying, right? And the father says, his father says to Ron, he says, "Hey, Ron, you know we should invent a scale like a like a fish scale that you can just tie to the bag, and then you could lift the bag and you can weigh it. That way, people aren't you know showing up to the airport with sixty right. pound bags and moving stuff around." And he kind of brushed off the idea, but his father kept on him about it, and he finally went to a sourcing show in Chicago, and he found some Chinese company that can make these little digital luggage scales for them. And he got uh, the first 3,000 units made for $30,000. This is completely made, packaged, right. everything. It was called the Balanza. And... Uh, and as he was having them made, he got pictures of them, but he started calling up all the travel gadget type uh, retailers online. Before they got to the, the product got back to the U.S., he had all 3,000 units sold. And, uh, and then he went on to sell many, many tens, if not hundreds of right. thousands of these, you know, simple luggage scales. And he got the price down from 10 to I don't know what, a lot less, you know, and they were selling them for 25, 30 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, he made a big, a big profit without a lot of money. Um, out and you know he just hired us to do the PR and he worked really hard selling and and he got the product done so you know there's a lot of great stories like that out there of entrepreneurs who can get who can get uh, you know a product sold but you need a great idea you need a great product you need a good package and uh, and then you know figure out what the best way to market is market it is. it's so funny because you bring up that idea and like the second you hear it you're like shit that is the best idea ever you know what I mean and one that why didn't someone have that idea even 30 years ago I mean that problem has always been around right well know? it became a bigger problem when the when the when the airlines started charging, charging per- for overweight and for uh, and for extra baggage because now I know when I go with my family my family always has like eight suitcases and I want to make sure that every single suitcase has 50 pounds in it because mm-hmm. I don't want them to have nine suitcases. <laughs> right. Uh, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, Nicholas, go ahead, buddy. You're on the air. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, I just wanted to say to Max, Max, I used to work at TechCrunch and CrunchGear and The Daily, and I've worked with your company a whole bunch of the times over the year, and you guys are seriously one of the best companies I've dealt with as far as going the whole tech PR thing. And Rodham actually, uh, your old intern, Gabriel's brother. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've worked with Max over the years, not him, you know, his company, and they're great. And, you know, it's, it's so, super cool to sort of hear sort of the origin story behind the company that I've worked with, you know, over the years. So, you know. Wow, thanks, uh, thanks for saying that. That that uh, I'm touched. I thought people were going to call and heckle me. So. Well, that's, no. uh, but that's really the whole weirdness of a small world thing because I've, I've read Nicholas's stuff 
uh, a lot over the past years and didn't know that there would be this uh, connection. Um, so you're looking to hire people, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what are you looking for? So, you know, first thing we look for is a cultural fit. And what we mm. mean is, you know, we, we, we're, we hire people who really want to do the work and, and make the sacrifice it takes to be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, and and those people are kind of hard to find. So, um, of course, if they have PR experience, that's a plus, but believe it or not, I've hired a lot of people in our agency who came in with no PR experience. They were just, they were badasses, you know, yeah. and, and they were the kind of people that were fearless, they were creative, and, and they were just going to figure out what they had to do to be successful in our company, and, 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 and made it happen. So. Here's what I don't understand, though, Max. We're, we're putting out more kids that are coming out of college than ever, right? How come they're not lining up? to work with this successful company. Well, I think they are lining up, and yeah. I think a lot of those folks come and, and they apply, but unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of them are trained to be average. They're not trained to be exceptional. And so it's, it's you know, we have to we have to find those that really just kind of pop out and are, and are right. special. Send me a Molly and Dana. I'm going to see, I got a couple interns here <laughs> that are great kids. Okay. They, they're polar opposites. Okay. Uh, and maybe one of them is going to be absolutely perfect for you. Okay, that's great. Can we interview them right now? Well, yeah, we're going to interview okay. them that's right great. now. All right, this is Molly. She's the nice one. You sit here, darling. And where we got Dana? Dana's out in the hallway. She's um, trying to catch a glimpse of J. Cole, who's here today. There's a big difference for you. She's yeah. trying to catch a glimpse of J. Cole. So, uh, Molly... You've heard this conversation leading up to this, yeah, right? You realize that you have this successful guy sitting in front of you that is hiring the best and brightest of your generation. Do you feel like you're up for this? Do you feel like you're ready for this? Yes, after I get my degree. Yeah. What is it about that? <laughs> what is it about the degree that's going to make you feel better? Uh, it's just like something to fall back on, I guess. Mm. And I don't know. I just think... I don't know why. I just my parents would kill me if I didn't get a degree. Do you feel like she's interviewing well already? Uh, it's starting out a little slow. Uh huh. Yeah. You already have a yeah. problem with her. Yeah, the whole falling, you know, yeah, falling wanting the back. safety net kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. You know, because you're looking for a shark. We're looking for people that are fearless. Yeah. All right. Now this is Dana. She's one of Hello? my bad girls. Hi, Dana. Now, nice to meet you, Dana. You would you consider yourself fearless? Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm not scared of nothing. No, are you just saying that because that's what Max wants to hear? Or? No, it's just how I am. <laughs> Can't help it. All right, so I don't know what the... And by the way, who were you looking to catch a glimpse of? J. Cole. Mm-hmm. Album uh, came out today. Born Sinner. Go get it. No, what, what is it about J. Cole that you want to see so bad? He's a great rapper. Well, no, I mean, yeah. You are telling me you need work, right? You owe money from your college education? Yes. How much do you owe? Oh, God. Well, I'm paying 50000 a year, so... A lot of loans. I, I can't even, I don't know, I can't do the math. I don't pay them. Does that, is that shocking to you, Max, being a street guy, knowing that these kids are paying $50,000 a year? And she's taking the loan herself for that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to make that pay off. Yeah. So. Sad. It's very sad, but you know what? I try to find internships. You know, I work hard and, you know, I save my parents money. I RA and I get free housing. So that knocks off a couple thousand and mm -hmm. I do what I can. So. Right. 
Yeah. And you don't even know what you're going to owe at the end of it. I don't even want to think about it. You don't want to think about it. I really don't. That's a good business mind, isn't it, Max? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just living in denial. <laughs> That's great thinking if you want to be an addict. I don't know. Well, because it... right now I'm not paying them. My, my parents are doing it, but my mom said once you're out of school and you get a job, the loans are your business, not, you know. Right. right now I'm focusing on school, so I can't focus on how much I'm going to because that's how college kids, you know, tend to do bad. And studies show you, you slack on your grades because you're focused about how much money I'm, am I going to owe when I graduate. And So what do you want to do? How are you going to pay them back? God, I'm so, I hate saying it. I'm a, I'm a communications major, and I want to be in the music entertainment industry, and I don't know exactly what I want to do. I mean, I, ideally, I like to be in radio, but I know realistically it's hard, so I honestly, at this point, I'll take whatever I can get when I graduate, you know? As long as I'm happy with it. No, see, here's the same thing. When I met Max, he was he had mm -hmm. the same goals as you, except for there was no college, and he was out promoting his own things and going after it. And when he would owe money, it was fifteen hundred, <laughs> not a hundred and fifty thousand. That's how much one course costs. Yeah. And, I, and I paid it back. God damn it! That really pisses me off. So mad. Really was thinking, oh, this is a call where he goes, hey, I want to pay you back that money I owe you from years ago. Um, so you could not get more opposite than you with this kind of uh, son of a Cuban immigrant, and these two kids. American-born, but uh, Molly, are you paying off your loans? Or your parents going to do it? My parents are going to do it. Mm. So that puts you in a little better position, yeah. right? Yeah, it does. And that made you just grimace at her, like you hate her. No, it's not. Yeah. She's she's well, blessed. It might be a better position. It might be a worse. You know, yeah. maybe she's going to have more motivation to you know to to make more money because she's got this big debt looming over her. So. Maybe even take out more loans. <laughs> <laughs> I kept telling my mom, like, Ma, can we take out extra for my loan? I need spending money. Because I, I can't work throughout the year. I'm taking 18 credits, so I don't have time to have a job and make money. So I want to add more to the loan. Um, here is uh, Brian in St. Augustine. Go ahead, Brian. What's your question for Max? Hi, Ron. Hi, Max. Um, I have a new invention. Uh, my life's work has basically become, uh, we came up with something that takes more tar out of uh, smoke than water is able to in water pipes and hookahs. We uh, did a commercial or a video about a minute and a half long. We we're trying to get some uh, heat out in the Internet. And I was wondering if you had any advice in terms of how to get the uh, get the name out there. So it's kind of a filter, though? That's the main it's thing, a, it filters tar out? It's a replacement for water. You, you just pour it in instead of water. And what it does is it bonds to the tar, so uh, you, you inhale less tar, it's a smoother smoke. You know, it's, um, it, it, so who's, who's, the, who's the end user? It's going to be smokers, the, the actual consumer? Yeah, people who uh, use water pipes and hookahs, hookah lounges, stuff like that. Pakistanis, Indians? <laughs> Among them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you think that a lot of people who are, let's say, smoking hookah pipes are concerned with the amount of tar that they're getting well that's a, you know that, that's a big question it has some other benefits too uh it comes with some sense that reduces odor it keeps the piece cleaner longer uh yeah, you know i wish i knew yeah. i wish i knew the answer but uh i'm just gonna break my balls until i find out one way or the other um i was just wondering <clears throat> you, you know i think the the, the cool thing about 
the internet now is that you can you can start to kind of test your product you know so you can put it out there and see what kind of response you're getting who you know what kind of people are interested in the product and where the interest is so that you because I'm sure you made some assumptions when you came up with the idea about who you thought would want to buy the product um, but you really don't know until you get out there. I mean, you can ask your friends, would you buy it? But that doesn't mean anything because they're all lying to you anyway. So uh, what you really got to do is get the product out there, you know, on a website or however you, you can sell it online. You know, spend as little money as possible doing it and start testing the market and see who's buying it, who's who's showing interest. And then use that information to, to, to continue to, to develop your plan and, and grow it. And you can do that organically and you can do it without spending you know, a whole lot of money, but I don't think you need to go and, and invest a, you know, a ton of, of cash into some big marketing plan. Okay, may I give a quick plug? Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Uh, Club13.com is where the video can be watched. Uh, it's under Greatest Hits. And uh, thank you guys for your time. All right. Now, I actually smoke a lot of hookah pipes, so this will be perfect for me. I'm having a hookah party if you guys want to come by. Really? Yeah, I thought there was going to be a lot of tar. But now, if things work out with Club 13, it's going to be really tarless. Um, Max Borges uh, is sitting in with us. It's the Max Borges Agency. You're doing uh, a big gig here in New York. 50 different brands, 100 different products. And uh, you brought up the fact that you were really uh, happy that you still have handouts. Yeah, exactly, because the first day that we ever met, it was me giving you a flyer for my Tampa <laughs> Bay Music Awards and you uh, you know, agreeing to promote it. And here I am again, 20 years later, with another flyer. <laughs> <laughs> That's how life works. You just really never get out of the flyer business. Uh, here is uh, Jay. Jay, you're on the Ron Fez show. Hey, Ron. Hey, Max. Yeah. How are you? Great. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Max, I want to come work for you, buddy. All right. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, what is it about <laughs> you, Jay? What is it about what you heard about this that you want to jump in for? Well, uh, I was excited that uh, that Max kind of started out kind of like I did. You know, he said that 60 was about the max that he was making. Then he uh, he jumped up to the, the bigger numbers there. and Boy, I sure would be interested in that. And those sixties you were scraping for, right, Max? Oh yeah, I was. Uh, I was working my butt off. And but it wasn't ever all coming from one place. Have you ever had a nine to five job? Like uh, yeah, yeah. No. Actually, I did. Um, you know, after doing all those music awards, believe it or not, in <laughs> nineteen ninety five, I got hired by the Grammy Awards, uh -huh. and I worked for them for two years for the Recording Academy, uh, which was a good job, but it was a job, and and I got fired because I'm a better boss than I am an employee. So what made you a bad employee? Uh, you know, I just wanted to do things my way, and right. and I'm I'm not. You know, if you give me a list of things to do, I'm not really good at going and do it. If I make my own list, then I'm going to get it done. But if you give me a list, I'm not quite as motivated. So, you know, I'll kind of change up your list. You feel like you're a pretty good boss, though? Uh, yeah, I think I'm a good boss. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I love the people that work for me. And, and I think I, you know, I treat them well and I let them do, you know, what they got to do. And I mean, I think the important thing is that, you know, I got a lot of people working for me that have done, that are doing the best work they've ever done in their life. Right. And so I think my job is to create an atmosphere where people can do their best life work. And, and then they're happy and, and I'm happy. 
So what is the purpose, because this to me is the most interesting of all, of having your office glass and looking like Ari Gold's on Entourage. <laughs> what is it about that really cool office thing that you think is worth, and you guys overlook Miami Beach, right? So we're actually in the Brickle area, which yeah. is just north of, of downtown, and we, we look over the whole Brickle area, which you can see Miami Beach in the distance, but uh, what's the, the value of it? You know, First of all, um, the, 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 another job that I had worked for this company called Mars Music, and, and the offices were in a warehouse that was completely built out with offices, and, and there was no glass anywhere, and I'd walk mm. out every day, and I didn't know if it was day or night, if it was raining or sunny, and I hated that. So I always swore whenever I got a, could build out my own office the way I want it, I would have a lot of glass. And then, of course, I love entourage. And yeah. <laughs> so, so, so when I got to sit down with the architect, I said, so how much would it be if it was all glass? <laughs> and uh, so it was a little bit more money, but it was worth it. And, uh, and now, you know, now we've got a place that people really enjoy the atmosphere and they like working there. So in the end, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recruitment tool that really works. And that is worth the investment. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, let's go over here to George. George, you're on the Run of Fest show. Hey, Ronnie B yeah. and the boys. Yo, Max, you grabbed my ear, man. You got my attention. I'm a motherfucking <laughs> shark. I graduated uh, advertising top 5% of my class. I have 15 years in marketing experience and in the wireless industry. Why should I come and work for you, brother? All right. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a background in wrestling. <laughs> uh, you know what kills me, though? Why are these people shooting for... I got you guys sitting right next to Max Borges. Both of you are in here telling me as interns that you're worried about your future. I got you next to, your, next to the man... And the listeners are working harder. I was yeah. just going well, I didn't want to interrupt him. Do you need an intern? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking for salespeople. He's looking to Good make uh, people rich. You're still looking to intern after all this time. Well, I well, cause I'm still in school. I don't know if you're like, you How much more me. time you got? I got one year. I'm going to be a senior. I can't so. see you with a degree in anything. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the support. <laughs> Look, you can just come work for me now, and you'll save fifty thousand dollars, and you'll it. start making money. Yeah, I think the reason that I'm not like, uh, like, um, you know, be being a shark right now is because I am like intimidated because I don't know, like, the way that okay, the like through listening to this conversation, um, the main thing that I've noticed that I feel like is the driving force behind your success is like you were like this didn't work for me, and so I didn't do it. Like, I feel like that's, like, the central, um, like, common thread through your experience that, like, instead of just, like, sitting back and, like, sitting it out and, like, just waiting for, for like, it to work for you, you didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you got to try something different. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, then that's insanity, right? Yeah. So Max would get his teeth kicked in and go, okay, I know that that doesn't work. Right. I'll try it this way. Yeah. He didn't go back and do the same thing again, but his... his uh, Education came from what didn't work, but by the time he that this new business opportunity came through, he had all this experience right. from doing a lot of things the wrong way and some things the right way. Yeah, and I guess like people view success as sort of like this. There's like a track with an end goal, but I feel like that's not really how you saw it. Like that it was, you know, that it was just like not as black and white as that. And like I don't know, I just think it's really awesome. 
Yeah, well, I think that's right. There's not a, there's never like a finish line, and once you get there, I mean, I've, yeah. I've already surpassed everything I ever thought I was going to accomplish anyway. So mm -hmm. you know, now I have to set a new goal. So, um, what is the new goal? Do you know yet? Uh, I want my own jet. That's it. As, long, as soon as you get your own jet, then you're like, now I'm happy. Now I've got this jet, and I'm happy. By the way, I've been in people's private jets. Not all of them are happy. Really? I was in. Don't, don't tell me that because yeah. that's my only yeah. <laughs> my last goal. Well, I, I travel. <laughs> that's I, true. Somebody else pointed that out recently. I saw a. But, but the great thing about having a private jet is you could be back in your house at night. Exactly. It's really like having a car. But I saw a guy who owned his own football team and his own stadium. Just goddamn Rumpelstiltskin pissed because the TV wasn't working. Like literally having the worst day ever and pounding. And I'm like, here's a guy under forty who's a billionaire and he's still not happy. So that isn't that isn't always the stuff yeah. that makes you happy or not. True. What would make you happy, I think, is babies. Me? That's what you want, Molly. Nice what? babies. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so weird to have the darkness and the light <laughs> sitting so close. Making me look like shit. The Ron. meanest little intern I'm ever not mean. and the sweetest little intern ever. I was sweet at a point, too. Give no, no, you never will. Uh, Randy, you're on the Run of Fez show. Buddies, how you doing, man? Good, pal. What's up? Hey, man. I uh, self-starter, brother. I uh, put a band together a long time ago. One of the guys you might know from the Royal Southern Brotherhood. Man, we made some records, toured the country. I was tour manager for that band, did all the PR. Got out of that because I knew I wanted to do radio when I got older. Bullied my way into that with absolutely no experience, much like my favorite radio host of all time. And I think I'm done with that, man. I got a lot of experience in hustling and jiving and selling and I would like to uh, send you my resume, if possible. Go ahead and send it to Max. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to yeah. send it to Max. Fuck, I'll send it to you too, Ronnie B. Um, <laughs> here's what. Uh, here's the thing, Max. You're going to be around in New York for a couple of days, right? Yep. And 50 different businesses you are promoting. Who are you promoting them to? Is this the media is coming in? Yeah, to it's take media. There's about 150 of uh, the top. Top tier media from here in New York are going to be coming to, to the event where they get to see some of the latest gadgets that are being unveiled mm -hmm. tomorrow. But you were telling me that you were thinking about a New York office and a San Francisco office, and even now you, you worry if there's if you can staff those offices with the kind of people that you want. I mean that's always the concern, um, though I think that part of the motivation for a New York and San Francisco office is being able to continue to staff at the velocity that we're we're staffing because uh, you know Miami um, we're we're an English language tech PR agency in Miami it's mm -hmm. absolutely the opposite of what you should have right. in Miami <laughs> That's so, so I mean you you know if anybody would have asked uh, you know ten years ago if that was a good idea they would have said no it's a terrible idea because there's no technology in Miami and everybody there is Latin and, and you got to do you know Latin American PR and it would never work so uh, but you know we did it anyway but now 
you know, after all these years, it, you know, it just gets harder and harder to staff it up. I got to relocate people from New York. So I think having an office here would be helpful. Is the only reason why the business started there is because you lived there? Yeah. Was that the only oh, yeah. reason at all? Yeah, that was it. Because remember, yeah. I wasn't looking to start a business. I was looking for a job <laughs> and I got a client. So, you know, it wasn't until I had a few clients that I thought, okay, this is this is a business now. I, I should keep going down this road. The, the tech business, uh, this is going to go on for ever though the tech business itself we are going to constantly keep getting new phones new computers new smart toilets smart refrigerators smart everything so you feel like no problem with that right as long i think it'll it'll outlast me for sure yeah, yeah. opportunity is here in the united states even though people are telling us on a constant basis that these are these are the hardest times. It's only hard for average people. There's a lot of people out there that are exceptions to everything mm -hmm. that's going on out there. And, and that's the key. You have to find out how, you, how you're going to do it different. Speaking of average people, Dana, you learning anything from any of this? <laughs> I'm learning a lot, yeah. I mean, do you need an intern? If you, if you come what, to New York City, I will give you my Why resume. do you keep going for intern? Why not because asking for a I'm job? So in, I, people yeah, can work while they're in school. I would love school. a job. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes there's requirements. And, but yeah, I'd love a job. She's looking for walls, is what she wants. She doesn't want a door. She wants a wall. No, I want a job, but I didn't think... You know, I'm still in school, so I don't think you'd hire me. You know. Great interview. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> Fine. I'm just under pressure. Um, here is uh, Jay in Pittsburgh. You're on the Run of Fest show. Hey, guys. Hi, Ron. Hi, Max. Hey. Uh, I got a question. I'm getting out of the service next year. I've been a self-promoter for like the last seven years with bands, publishing companies. I did a radio show. Love promoting, love marketing, advertising, all that stuff. I guess this could go. This question would be for both you, uh, Max and Ron. Like I said, I'm getting out of the service next year. No college, nothing, and I just want to work. What would you suggest the first step being for somebody just starting off? You, you know, figuring out what your what your path in life is going to be is probably the hardest thing ever. You know, and I know I went down a lot of different paths that were not necessarily the right one, but I learned from them. Um, you know, when you're young, it's easy because you don't have any responsibilities. So if you uh, screw up, it's just you. You know, I don't know. Well, what I'm a little older, so and, uh, yeah, and yeah. I got a child, so okay. So so you actually have to make money from day one. Um, you know, I, I think that's something you're going to have to really do some soul searching and figure out what it is that you're good at. Where do you think you bring value? You know, how how you think you can make money or make money for your employer, and uh, and and then start testing some things out. You know, maybe get into sales. Um, that's always a, a a great skill to develop. Um, if you're going to be in marketing and, and you can make some money right away doing it and you can learn about different businesses and different jobs while you're doing that. Um, you know, I, I know that, look, some of the most important, a lot of people wait tables when they're a teenager. When I was 17, I was a phone solicitor. I used to sell uh, solar-powered hot water heaters over the mm -hmm. phone to people. And that was one of the greatest experiences ever because I'd be sitting in this, in this boiler room with a bunch, of, a bunch of guys that were 20 years older than me, and I'm just calling one person after the other, after the other, after the other, and just using my voice to try to convince them to set up this appointment with a guy who's going to sell them a solar-powered hot water heater. And, uh, and it was a great experience for me to learn that, that, you know, that sales 
uh, uh, skill. So I, I think that's something that in marketing, you know, first you got to know how to sell to people, and then you can you can develop it off of that. And 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 that may not be too risky of a road for you um, coming out of the military, and, uh, and and you know you can make some money. There there is this whole fear that people have about hearing no or having anyone screw with the fantasy, right? That's a big part of it. Oh, and it's getting worse now because, you know, now everything's over email. So mm -hmm. now the whole idea of picking up the phone and calling somebody and actually having to confront a human being right. voice to voice who's going to say no is, you know, people just don't know how to do that anymore. And and it's and it's and it's very important to be an effective uh, person in life and 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 an executive is to be able to tell people what you want, ask them for what you want, and convince them that what you want is the right thing. It's so weird because so many people here, when it comes to booking guests and all, they'll be like, I sent an email. And they feel like their day is done. Like, I'm still waiting for that email back. Looks good with Joan Rivers. We sent her another email. And I'm like, <laughs> she, you are going. She's done a million things. You are going to have to impress her to, you know, of something to get in there. And that's what you had when you were a kid, is that you were willing to get in and knowing that you were going to get elbowed. Oh, I had to show bit. up at the radio station yeah. and see you in person, because if I would have, well, first of all, I emailed you, there was no email, but if right. I would have called you, you know, you probably would have said, you know, who yeah. the hell is this guy? It was only because we saw each other face to face that we were able to make a connection. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you, you you can't be afraid of getting people's face and asking for what you want and, and, and making it happen. And the other thing is, to the kids... Everybody likes people who want to be in the same business mm -hmm. as them. Yeah. Kids never realize that, that people want to know, hey, here's, here's somebody who doesn't think that this business is, is done or over, you know, because in, uh, everybody out there has stories. To me, because I interview a lot of people. So many people will do just what Max did today. Is here's how I lost. I don't care if it's an actor, a musician. They love to tell you, "Look, I was in the same position as you until X happened." They never forget those yeah. experiences. There's no reason as kids shouldn't get out there and try to meet more people. Yeah, that's one thing I think people don't don't understand, young people don't understand is that successful people love young people who want to be successful like them. Right. It's the it's the greatest compliment when someone walks up to you and says, "How'd you do it? Right. I want to be successful too. Can you give me some advice?" You know, "Okay, I'll hire you. Because you got the most, job." <laughs> most people, seriously, most people um, wander around the world and think, I've learned all these things, and no one gives a shit. So when someone comes along and goes, hey, how did you do that? How do you get from here to here? They're like, they just start pouring it out. They love to talk about those things. Uh, let's go over here to, um, let's go over to Phil in New Orleans. Go ahead, Phil. What's going on, Ronnie B? Yeah. One thing I've noticed about uh, these college graduates is, is the entitlement. They think the degree entitles them to have the top jobs in the country. They, it's like they take the climb out of success. They want to jump straight from the degree to being successful. Well, but let me defend them because that's what they were taught as a very young age. Mm -hmm. They were taught you are not going to, you know, if you get this, your life will be better. 
And, uh, you know, the story that Max is telling us that even the success that he's had doesn't even guarantee success. You know, that he's got to work at it every single day. And quite frankly, when you look over, and I brought this up early on, Max's thing with him and his company is how to make other people money. How to make sure other people get the things that they're looking for. Yeah. Which Dana's sitting over there like a baby bird with her mouth open, uh, wanting us all to come drop uh, worms I'm, in this it. Is, this whole conversation is very insightful, so I'm trying to jot it in my mind and, you know... Well, and, and you know, it's an interesting point, too, because I think that, you know, a lot of schools... And look, you, there's some jobs you have to go to school for, sure. right? Yeah. Um, but there's some that you don't. But uh, college is not going to tell you that. As far as they're concerned, you have to go to and get a degree for every job, and they'll show you the data that proves that if you go to their school, you're going to make more money, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the truth is that some jobs you really don't have to go to school for. You just have stuff you need to learn and things that, that you need to do. And and that's it. In okay. terms of sales, if you can make people money, you can work. And the weird thing is, I don't know if I've ever met a CEO in this comp in this country who doesn't have a sales background. I've never worked with anyone uh, who wasn't like, here's our bottom line. No matter what else is happening, any time that I've ever gotten in trouble at work is because. This, the money that we're bringing in line was not as good as the money we're paying out line. That's the only time those guys wake up and go, hey, what the hell are you guys doing down here? What happened? Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, look, sales is, is, sales is a good path mm -hmm. to success because you can move from salesperson to CEO. There's, there's a direct line uh, right to that job, and there's not necessarily a direct line from other jobs. Um, you know, when I interview people, a question that I love to ask, and, and I started asking it because I was really curious, right? Because I didn't go to college, and I was interviewing people, and I, and I almost, almost every person that works for me has a four-year degree or a master's degree, mm -hmm. MBA. Um, and a question I love to ask is, Tell me what's the most important thing that you learned in college. What did you really get from, from that experience that is going to help you today? And I think the best answer I ever got was uh, I learned how to get more things done in a day or something. Mm. Like, I mean, it was like nothing. And, like Nobody ever has a really good answer as to what this magic thing is that you just paid $200,000 for and you got nothing. That, I, that's why I laugh because I could. If you asked me that, I, w I would have nothing to say because I was just telling Molly this. You know what I learned at this internship is far more useful than what I've learned in the classroom. Like just from interning, I, I've learned nothing at pace, literally. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with getting away from from your you know family. That's an important thing to growing. Yeah. And how to you know, Max uh, said the kids like to make a project but it's a you know max was doing that stuff as a young guy to make money mm -hmm. it's a really big difference mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> here is um here's jeff in lexington you're on the run of fest show yeah hey ronnie how are you? yeah hey max i got a question for you i've sure. got a uh, a product that i came up with that i have a prototype of and uh, it works like a charm. It's a completely unique product. I I've never seen anything quite like it on the market. It's one of those things that when you see it, it makes you stop and turn your head. Um, and I was getting ready to go to a manufacturer locally to start looking at pricing. That, but um, it looks like it's going to be expensive to produce. So what caught my attention was you were talking about the sourcing 
uh, I don't know if it's a conference or a sourcing. Yeah, sourcing happens. show or a sourcing fair. There, there's a number of them that that happen throughout the year across the country. Um, okay. So you, you can you can go to one of those, and and basically what you're doing is you're meeting in front of representatives of different uh, factories. You know, many of them from China, and and you can actually sit down with somebody and show them what your idea is, and and get an idea of what it's going to cost to get it made. There's also people who, I mean, I got a buddy who lives in Shenzhen. He's from New York, but he lives in Shenzhen. He's he's got a business, and all he does is help uh, companies from the United States get stuff sourced there at the factories in Shenzhen. He you know he speaks Mandarin and and he knows how to negotiate with the factories. So there's a lot of people out there that provide that kind of a of a intermediary uh, service and, and can help you with that. Just Google something like that, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. Or if you you know look up my email address and and uh, and just send me an email and I'll I'll send you a contact. Um, All right. Max, how much of your life feels like Shark Tank? That people are just coming in <laughs> and doing the Shark Tank pitch to you. That's like my favorite show. I love yeah, that. I know. How quickly. It's, pretty, it's about how long you get in front of money people, too, isn't it? You get about five minutes to go in there, and if you don't really give them the buzz, you know, they're done. Um, it's very, very weird how most interviews that you do or whatever come into that very short period of time most sales it's a very short period of time yeah absolutely I mean you've you've got a very short amount of time to make a first uh, impression and to catch someone's attention mm -hmm. and look even when I'm interviewing people for a job the moment they walk in the door the first thing I do is I look at them and I go do I like this person? Is this someone who I will feel confident to put in front of a client? Do I feel like my client is going to look at this person and say, I can entrust my entire business in this person's hand? Because sometimes that's what they're doing. You know, they're, they're trusting us to do all their PR work. And if it's a small company, a lot of times that's all the marketing they're doing is, is hiring us. And, you know, I've got a lot of clients tell me that they're, my, the check they write to my company is the biggest check they write all month. So that's a huge responsibility. So when someone walks in the door, I got to look at that person and say, all right, is this person really a person who can represent my agency and represent the the company and do the work. And that's based on what? Is that just a gut thing? Is it appearance? You is know, it it's it, it, part of it is kind of a gut thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's appearance, but it's not it's it's not whether they're good looking or not. It's like, do they have that kind of of character, that kind of of image that uh, that gives you instant confidence that this person is a person who knows what they're doing? Mm. See, that's how I feel around Molly. She makes me very confident. Where, uh, no offense, but with Dana, I'm always checking my wallet. Like, is there <laughs> any money missing? Wait, is this related to sales? Right now, I work at the call center Pace, and I call kids in high school and try to get them to come to Pace. That's like, good. Convincing them. Did so you tell I them you haven't learned so anything you, there? That's a good job. <laughs> I talk about my experience. I'm a little bit of a success story at Pace. But. Um, here's Scott. Scott, you're on the Run of Fez show. A question. If you had a partner... Uh, here's Scott. This is going to bust Fez's what? balls. I know that guy. Uh, Scott, go ahead. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, a lot of times college is not really necessary. Uh, at least in my case, it wasn't. Um, I started working in the motorcycle industry uh, when I was about 19. And luckily it was because of people I knew who sort of supported me. And I was going to be going to a trade school, but I was hired beforehand. So I learned on the job, and then through knowing more and more people, I actually got to a pretty uh, pretty good job now. But what, in this last job interview that I went to, the guy asked me, he said, 
you know, do you have any college credits, like, at all? And I was like, mm, well, no. And he said, good. Well, so, again, that don't you think it has to do with a lot of people? There's some people who are hiring that think education is really important, and other people like Max who, you know, it's not going to carry as much with you. Well, you know what? Look, I, I do think it's important. <clears throat> I don't have many employees that don't have a college education. I think I've got two. Mm-hmm. Um out of 47, I, I think it shows that you can accomplish something. I think that nowadays, um, most people are going to to college, and that it says something about you know your ability to accomplish something. So um, there have been some exceptions, but I think there's less. Uh, but that doesn't mean that college helped. Mm-hmm. It just means that college said something about the kind of person who walked in the door and the fact that they were able to get through college says something about them. Well, dude, it was great having you stop in here today, man. It's great to see, see how everything's going. Great seeing you too, Ron. Just like just like the good old days. It is. Nothing yeah. changes, does it? <laughs> uh, Max Borges, he's got the Max Borges Agency in Miami and hopefully uh, more spots to come. Are you 100% sure you paid me back that 1500 <laughs> I'm 100% sure. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but I'm proud of you, pal. I'm really glad to see you. Thanks, Ryan. Doing so well. And uh, that's it for us. We're out of here. Uh, back here tomorrow. Today's show went fast. Thanks to uh, Terrence Stamp. Go over to the Weinstein Co. Dot com. Uh, the folks from the Weinstein Company are telling me that Harvey is going to have... Big, big movies all lined up uh, for the rest of the year, too. They're uh, such a great company. And another guy who, self-starting guy, I don't know if you're familiar with Harvey Weinstein, but came out of the uh, promoting music up in Rochester for years before he got in the movie business. And he had two employees, and one of us, uh, one of them, was our old buddy Ross Reback. Oh, no kidding. So, yeah, Ross Reback started with him. Um, uh, and then the other employee uh, went on to run HBO and I think now NBC. So, <laughs> nice. Most of these guys that uh, are self starters have a really good high eye for uh, hiring people. All right, as if for us. Back in here tomorrow. I don't think anybody's got anything to plug. Catholic Joe, you got anything to plug, or you just went to meet Max? Searching for Man, what else can you? What is that going off there? I have no idea. Uh, I'm flip my comedy show real quick. Yeah. Tomorrow night, Eastville Comedy Club. Go there. Uh, I, my dad golfs. I bought him a driver so he can just cruise to the comedy club. Oh, I mean, geez. to the golf club. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> This show's going to blow. I'm going. It's go- you're going to go? Yeah, I'm going right. to support him. Well, did you two ever hook up? No. No. Mm. Not yet. No. no, no <laughs> not yet. yet. <laughs> she like a sister to you, too? No. No. Molly's too good for me. Huh? Molly's too good for me. And Dana's Thanks, too... Joe. She's there. She's there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, that's guys. it for us. Be back here tomorrow. And uh, that's the end of my show. Donk. Dish Network and The Hopper. The Hopper is the DVR that goes with you wherever and whenever you want to watch television. 
No more the old-fashioned days, people, of sitting in your living room having to watch television. Thanks to the Hopper from Dish Network, you can now watch TV anywhere you want to because you can watch your live TV events, also your recorded programming, and you can watch them on your smartphone, laptop, or tablet. Wherever you go, your TV goes with you thanks to the Hopper. You program the Hopper, that way you can turn any room into a TV room. You're away on business, you're away from the house, you don't have to miss any games. You can program your hopper and then watch it where you're at, smartphone, laptop, or tablet, all with the hopper. The other DVRs from the cable companies don't handle this. They don't do it, just the hopper from Dish Network. Give Dish a call, 1-800-WATCH-TV. That's 1-800-WATCH-TV. Watch all your live and recorded TV Anywhere with the Hopper from Dish 1-800-WATCH-TV.